0: Yeah.
1: All right, we're live. Uh, Lee Cantor, uh, thank you for being here. Um, you are the, the elk, um, excuse me, the moose uh, program manager uh, for the state of Maine. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Now, I said elk. I, that was kind of a misnomer, but right, yeah. moose are called elk in Europe, right? I or, think so. I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was that was definitely a hundred percent of a mistake. But
0: not well, really. if you come from the, your part of the world, right? It's yeah, it could elk be. are much more common than moose, so could
1: be elk. Um, so uh, th- again, thanks a lot, and um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. You're the only guy or the guy uh, that they, they look to for moose in this state. So um, yeah, good, bad, or otherwise. Well, hey. <laughs> Um, but but uh, if you could, just a little bit uh, for the listeners, a little bit of your background and how you got into the position.
0: Well, that's a long story. I'll try to make it short, you know, but uh, how far back you want to go.
1: As far as you'll take us.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's like you talk to any wildlife biologist who's working today and everybody's going to tell you the similar story, right, about growing up and growing up with their family and being outdoors and then this kind of dream of what this job might be like and mine was a little not quite that similar but i definitely spent my childhood because i grew up in the 70s it seems like a long time ago uh you know running running pretty wild and free and because i have two kids today it's a different different world and uh my brother and i we ran the neighborhood and so anyways i spent i spent my youth outdoors but um you know i went to college and all that type of stuff and really want to do outdoors things i wound up uh, through hiking like the appalachian trail back when i was a young young lad and uh, from georgia to maine so that's a five-month trek. Mm-hmm. so you got a little time for reflection there and uh, i decided that ultimately i wanted to switch from kind of outdoor recreation type of stuff like guiding to really work and focusing on wildlife mm-hmm. and so that can be a long road because especially if it's non-traditional so most people will go to school when they're 18 at a at a state university that has a wildlife program Mm -hmm. uh, because not every school does and you know do a degree in fisheries and wildlife and decide they're either going to be a game warden or be a biologist and uh, i loved wildlife and of course like a lot of people big game big animals was a big big thing for me and certainly um you know north country animals and being, being in the wintertime, animals that survive in that kind of environment. So, I mean, long story short, you know, I, I wound up going back to school, got my wildlife degree undergrad in New Hampshire, worked for a number of years doing work in wildlife, went back another time to do my grad work in New Mexico and uh, did, a, did my graduate work on a interstate Colorado, New Mexico elk herd. And uh, so kind of cut my teeth there and then wound up getting in, working in the Pacific Northwest as a wildlife biologist, and eventually my wife and I made our way back east because we want to raise a family or have a family. Mm. And, uh, and I took on the deer biologist job here first, initially when I came to the state, and then took on moose, and here I've been ever since. So I made that a quick, quick journey because we could be here for days.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine. Yep. Um, that's excellent history there. Um, you, have, you touched on some things that uh, really got me going. Number one is you worked with elk. Yeah. Um, now, how many years of experience do you have with elk?
0: Well, my graduate work was, you know, it's it's typically two. I was there a little bit less because I was hot and heavy to get a permanent job because I just I've always worked since I had a paper route when I was a little boy. I've never not worked. Um, and going to school was no different. I worked my way through school. I had jobs when I have two undergraduate degrees. Crazy, crazy stuff here worked all through school, sometimes 30 hours a week, um, like a lot of people. And uh, same in graduate school, but I was itching to get a job and I wasn't gonna go any further with education than graduate work, you know what Mm. I mean, a master's degree. But a master's degree is definitely a door opener in the wildlife world. It's not absolutely necessary, but it's good. And of course, graduate work is all about doing a field project, Uh collecting data, analyzing that data and writing it up. And I was fortunate that, I, I worked for the New Mexico Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. Mm-hmm. And those, those research units that are embedded in the majority of states, not every state has a co-op research unit, um, does applied work. So a co-op unit would go to the state fish and game or the Forest Service or U.S. Fish and Wildlife and say, what do you, what do you need to get done? What's your priority work? And that's what attracted me to go back to grad school. You know, Mm. I didn't want to I didn't want to do research on something that was, you know, dealing with something that's esoteric that would not be applied to actual management. Right. And so that was that was the elk work. And and elk happened to be the subject matter. But it was a project that was dealing with all the conflicts that people have with elk. Mm. Um, And so you you touch on things about hunting, but also dealing with ranching and farming and conflict with elk and elk conflicts with other species. And that's a pretty good thing to have some background on when you're doing, working as a state biologist because, you know, I, I have this whole thing about cliches, but the cliche with wildlife work is, well, you know, it's not wildlife work, it's people management. And that statement drives me up the wall because, um, well, part of that is because of the dream, right? Your dream as a wildlife biologist is to work with wildlife, so you don't want somebody telling you, when you get a job as a wildlife biologist, you're not going to be dealing with wildlife. It's going to be dealing with people. Mm-hmm. I tend to disagree you know I mean it's definitely people and the social impact is absolutely huge it's a significant part of even what I do but let's not forget the moose themselves right back Mm. to moose or the elk themselves you know and you have to have a passion for that animal um, and all the things that animal stands for right Mm. and whether it's elk or moose people are going to tell you we love elk we love moose aesthetically right I mean, what a cool animal um, but those animals are important culturally, right? They're important for First Nations, um, they're important for all of us in our hunting heritage, and that's all of us who hunt, and you know, you have people who come from families who've hunted, you know, with their grandparents and their grandparents before them, and it has a deep meaning. It's a very personal thing, hunting. Um, you know, there's an economic component, of course, to hunting and viewing, wildlife viewing, we always talk about, seeing moose especially. Um, and then, of course, just, uh, you know, on the landscape, being a native critter like a moose in the state of Maine, um, from that perspective, ecologically, are very important. So mm-hmm. people will talk about all those things. So, yes, people are a big component, unfortunately. Um, but let's not forget the critters themselves and 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 what we think about them so
1: yeah for sure uh i as you were talking i thought about um that people component yep. and do you feel like in a way that there should be almost like a hybrid biologist because people are there's so much there's and i'm going to mention this because we'll probably get into this later the whether it's the com they call it the commission usually in states that that usually are the final say in whether it's you know we need to kill this many predators or we need to introduce wolves or we need to you know whatever that that impact on um your job as a scientist should there be like almost like a or like a like a almost like a mediator somebody in between the biologist who's in the field and, some, and the commissioner who's sitting on a board who actually makes that final decision? Or do you, see, do you even see that there's a breakdown there? Because I'm looking at it from a hunter's standpoint, and I think a lot of hunters would, would feel this way in that, wait a minute, why, you know, the, the commission's making this decision, but the biologist is clearly saying this.
0: Yeah, well, that's, a, that's something that's a, a constant, right? So in our state, You you understand that we do have a commission, but we have all these different layers because it is a democracy. Mm -hmm. And because it's a democracy, ultimately, we have, well, for us, we have two bodies that govern everything. So our, our state legislature actually has a joint standing committee made up of senators and representatives. And they have a joint standing committee for fish and wildlife. And they are the ones that will pass laws, mm. and so the laws will be the overriding thing to say. Just to be in, generalized, we're going to have a moose hunt, and that's the top layer. We're going to—it's a—it's illegal to have a moose hunt in the state of Maine. Now the details drop down to another level, which is um, we have an advisory council, which you might think of as a commission in New Mexico, mm-hmm. and those are made of, of members of the public that are selected and then um, agreed by our commissioner of fish and wildlife to be on that advisory council, they vote on rulemaking. So for instance, this year, the rulemaking would be, yep, for our moose hunt this year, we're gonna have 4,105 permits. They're gonna be broke down this way by management district, this many bull permits, this many cow permits, et cetera. And what will happen in that scenario is, I'll go and present that for this year, 2023, It's a three month process, three steps in the rulemaking, And so you present to the council and say, this is what we're looking at doing this year at step one. At step two, there'll be discussions about, well, people might disagree with something, one part of that. Mm -hmm. And you explain it to them. It goes out to the public, like a public notice. And then the public will call up the advisory council, uh, write letters or whatever. There'll be this whole dynamic back and forth. And then at the end of that process, at step three, it's like this or this for your permit allocations this year. And that happens every year in our state. So that's another level. Then you have the biologist level, which, so for me, I'm spending my year collecting information on moose. Um, we run the hunt in the fall. We get all that data back. And then by January, I should have all my ducks in a row. January, February, I'm flying aerial surveys. And then I'm gonna put together that packet of recommendations on permits for next year. Mm but i do that with our regional wildlife biologists with our game wardens um and of course we hear from the public all the time so we're mixing all that together mm. this is what we're going to do and then we bring it to the, back to the council so that's kind of a annual progression of that i see and so you know to your to your point about a hybrid or whatever that's that's something that i think happens anyways cuz everybody's always looking for a better way to communicate yeah and in this day and age more than In my opinion, of course, like everything I'm going to say, um, things are even more, we think things are better. But with social media and all this stuff, things are just different the way we communicate. So you would think today, right, like you're going on a moose hunt or, or something. I mean, all the information is there. It's there for you to, you can grab it. The question is, are you going to? Mm. because, right, everybody always talks about, like, well, just write three sentences, because nobody's going to read more than that. So it's still the same problem of how do you best communicate with people. Well, you probably communicate differently than me, and me, than Sue. I mean, we all, you know, do you read the paper in the morning? Do you, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And it just seems to me like this task where you just do, you do the best you can. You're not going to get everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we can talk a lot about that.
1: No, I agree with that. Um, And, um, I guess when when I, as a hunter, you know, we think a certain way, and then the non-hunting public thinks their way, and I wish everybody had kind of uh, an objective view, not so much a subjective view of like, you know, but we're all human, we're going to have opinions too, so it's a a tough one, especially lately when you hear a lot about um, wolf introduction in some places and um, what the real data is, because the, the hunters will tell you clearly, I'm seeing this, and I'm (laughs) or i'm not seeing my game anymore and then you know then you have the people who love the wolves and man it's
0: it's like you know you want to you hear that and you want to just say you know good luck because yeah in this obviously not to get into politics but in 2023 more than ever does any is anybody listening to anybody anymore you know it's like you're just stuck in your way and so if we talk about you know hunting versus non-hunting and all that there's all kinds of great stuff out there there's great People who have social media presence or whatever, you know, not to, not to mention Meat Eater and Steve Renella, but, I mean, he's got a hell of a way of talking about hunting, and he's got a good ethic about it. Yeah. And you need people like that. And as you and I were talking about with late-onset hunting and whatever, the, the uh, demography of people hunting has changed. And the hunting community, and especially fish and game agencies, have always gone nervous. You know, we always talk about we're losing hunters because they're all old white guys like me and we're losing them, right? And we need diversity, right? Well, that is slowly changing, um, and you get a lot of young people who have different ideas about why they want to hunt. I want to hunt because I can shoot a deer, and I can feed my family with that deer, and it's free-range, organic meat, right? Um, And I'm doing it myself, you know, and the locavore and all these names we have out there. There's some neat stuff happening. but that's still hunting. Yeah. You know, it may not be the way your grandfather did it or something, but it's still hunting. And, and again, it's, you know, people can't be too judgy. They can't make too many value judgments. Um, but there's a lot of great programs on, out there about getting people involved in hunting and talking about hunting and progression of hunting from hunting a bird to a deer to something bigger mm-hmm. that uh, that people can feed on and take a look at that I think is is kind of neat stuff, you know. And like I said, I was not born into a family that hunted. So
1: yeah, well, you mentioned that before, and I and I, I kind of stopped you before we started getting into that too, because we talked for a while before we we started the podcast, which I love about this. We yeah. we're we, we're interested, and I love it. Uh, but you started to talk about you are late onset hunter, yeah. kind of like me. I'm I'm really late, but like, how did you? I mean, you have that background as a wildlife biologist and you weren't hunting initially like what got you into it to say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna pick up a a weapon
0: oh yeah well i mean you know i mean i've been hunting for i don't know it's not 30 years but like you and i were talking about when you start out it is one of those things where you you can you can become a hunter with and be very low tech about it right yeah but you start to get into and you're like you know i could use that and i could use that and it's a it's a it's a way of living that can be very extensive. You can get very into it in all the forms, right? Because you can, you know, whether we're talking about gear and how far in the backcountry you go, or different seasons, whether you're hunting muzzleloader versus rifle versus archery, so you can get really into it. But when you start, you know, you also need to have some ching some money, right? Yeah. And of course, when I was an undergrad, I I. Was in wildlife management, and my friends were hunters, and they they learned to hunt from their father, and their grandparents, and and, and I I didn't have that, but I always thought about God, you know. Ultimately, wouldn't it be cool, cool, uh, to be able to get an animal, shoot an animal, and eat eat it like a, rough grouse or a deer or something? That'd be pretty. I like that concept, you know. I like that concept, and uh, and then you have to deal with that from a, a personal viewpoint, right? Like, is that something you're, you're going to pull the trigger or not? You know what I mean? Yeah. When you get into that moment, you're going to have to make that decision. And, you know, some people probably don't think twice about that type of thing, but um, I know with, with having little kids, you think a lot about that, like, that important lesson, that hunting is really serious at the end of the day when you're taking something's life, right? And you better think hard about that. You, you wouldn't want somebody to come into the field of hunting and not have a some moments in their own head about what that means, the value of taking a life and what that means. And then the use of that animal. Yeah. That's some critical thinking that I think, you know, and maybe people who are born into it have maybe not, I shouldn't make any judgment here, but I think that's something every hunter's going to think about and come to grips with, you know, like if I kill a deer, you know, what does that mean? Because yeah. I want to respect that animal and I want to utilize that animal to the nth degree. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I think that's a big um, stepping stone for somebody, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like everything in life you need to think through and be prepared for what you're going to do, even if something never happens, so to speak. Um, and I think that's the same for hunting and and when you when you take your first animal and you learn about that, you grow tremendously because then you're like, "Oh okay, that's what it's like, this is what I need to do, this is what I need to be prepared for, and you build off that quite a bit. I mean I process my own deer and that's a part that I really enjoy and like. I like the, I like it from every standpoint. I like the control of what I'm making with that deer. I like the for lack of a better word, intimacy with it, I guess I don't know what the word is, but I'm doing it myself. Yeah. You know, from field, forest to table to freezer. And I had to spend some money to get the, you know, to get a grinder and get get the right tools. Um, and I had to learn that so I, I'm fortunate that I've had mentors I've had other biologists other friends um, who are really good hunters who are able to guide me down a good path of how to do something and then you got to go do it yourself and make some mistakes and figure it out right um so you know that's 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 all good stuff yeah yeah yeah
1: it, was there a moment um where or before you actually you know picked up a gun or bow or or whatever to to start hunting was there a moment that said i'm gonna try this or was there and and then the moments before that were you like yeah i deal with hunters and that's fine there's no way that i'd ever do that or was it in your mind to like kind of start it or was there a, was there like a situation that says <clears throat> did you said to yourself man i really want to start hunting now
0: you know well i mean there's no question, even when I, when I was an undergrad and was not, not an avid hunter, that my feeling was if you're going to be in a position like mine, you should know about hunting everything you can about it, even if you choose not to be a hunter. Mm. I think it's incredibly valuable, and I feel like I've been wrong in the past to think that I think it's an asset. Mm. I'm not saying you can't be a – let's just say I'm a, a big game biologist. I'm not saying you can't be one and be a non-hunter, but how do you understand somebody else's perspective, right, without being in your shoes? And even if I'm in your shoes, I still don't understand your perspective completely because I'm not you. Right. And as a hunter, um, that's a little different because, uh, you know, I'm not stepping in your exact shoes, but if you and I are both deer hunters, there's something that we both get about it, you know, and and the more we talk about it. And so I think it is important— And I thought a lot about that when I was in school, and and I wanted to understand it more. And part of that understanding was to actually go out and do it. But then the next step is actually becoming successful at it and actually knowing what you're doing. So in the beginning, when I hunted, I was talking to my buddy the other day. I said to him, you know, it's funny, the first gun I ever bought was a 12-gauge. It was an 870 Remington, right? Do it all, two barrels, rifle barrel, smooth barrel for for bird hunting. And I had this idea that, you know, right now being— you know, a student not having money, what gun's going to do it all? Well, your 12-gauge pump's going to do it all. I mean, you could duck hunt, you could turkey hunt, you could upland bird hunt, and you could kill a deer with that gun. Um, and so I bought that, and I was just thinking back then to where I am today, you know, where it's like, okay, well, yeah, I have a few rifles, I have a few shotguns, I, you know, I have a crossbow, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's definitely a... a, a whatever you want to call it, metamorphosis. But anyways, we were just talking about that first gun. And, yeah, you know, I mean, in a state like Maine, we have what we call partridge, which are rough grouse, but they call them partridge in Maine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a huge thing, you know, to go up driving the commercial forest lands and the roads and looking for birds and shooting birds. And, of course, lots of people use dogs as well. But, you know, that's ultimately a great first hunt is going bird hunting in Maine. And that's how a lot of people start out. Because, you know, that that develops your sense of hunting so that you could go on to a bigger critter like a deer, right? Yeah. Um, and, again, getting that kind of comfort level with what you're doing and what you're seeing. But when I started out, I started right in with deer hunting. And I was terrible at it, you know. And I'd go with my buddy who was a really good deer hunter. And we'd hunt together in places where I think that guy wasn't 100 yards from me. And all of a sudden, Boom!
1: And I'm like, what?
0: Are you kidding me? <laughs> and he's like looking at me. He's got to be one of the, he's a good hunter. And if he's listening to this podcast one day, he's going to laugh pretty hard, but he's a good hunter. But my God, that guy has some luck too. That's what he'd tell you. It's just luck, but it's skill. But my God, I hunted with him where he killed deer and I'm like right there. Like, what the heck? Yeah. You didn't even know. Yeah. yeah. That's
1: crazy. I love that though. That's a great story. Oh yeah. Um, well, hey, thank you for that, man. I I thought I was, I almost feel like I was alone in talking to all these uh, wildlife biologists that grew up hunting. And then you told me that before we got started that you're yeah, a late onset hunter. Of course, just not as late as me, but it's nice to know that there was, you have that <clears throat> that perspective of not hunting initially and saying, you know, okay, now I'm going to start doing it. And that that foresight of knowing that the more you know about a hunter, the better you, you're going to be able to do your job and communicate with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's the way it is. I mean, geez, you know, I, one of my other friends who I went to college with, who grew up hunting with his dad and, and all that, avid, avid deer hunter and all this, I mean, he actually appreciated the fact that my experience being in the woods was looking for critters, um, but like doing backcountry stuff. Like, I was a, when I was, Young, I was an absolute hound of a hiker, hiked all over the place, backpacked, guided trips, uh, avid canoeist, um, backcountry skier, like I just wow, really? absolutely tele, tele skiing, backcountry skiing, like that was my thing. So if you were spending the weekend hunting, I was spending the weekend up in the mountains. So the difference is you're, you're going after something different than me, but the skill set to do what I do and you do to be on the woods have a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um and then and you know, and guiding as well, you know, knowing where you are and and safety and all those outdoor skills. I had all those skills and in spades. Um and then when I so when I morphed into a hunter, it was the hunting part that I had to really understand and the gun part and the ballistics part. The only person in my family going back was my grandfather was a hunter and hunted in Maine. Um and my father had no concept of what his dad did. And so I was starting from ground zero. And now, what is my favorite thing to do? I mean, bar none, is deer hunting. There's nothing I like more than that. Really? And I actually, a couple of years ago, I think it was last year maybe, I started to have to admit the fact that, okay, let's be honest. I really do take the month of November off. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I mean, who are you fooling? You know, like yeah. here I am, you know, and, you know, our moose hunt is in September, October. Uh-huh. I work at the moose check station. I'm on the field quite a bit. Um, and then, then it's over by the end of October, basically. And deer season, rifle season starts here. And uh, you know, you look at my time off, and it's like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you know, it's, and it's just, it's just like an inside joke of me. It's like, just admit it, man. I mean, you take off the month of November. Like, okay, I guess, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've extended my hunt too because we have, we have a four-week rifle season, and then it's followed by two weeks, depending on what part of the state you're in, with a muzzleloader season, uh-huh. and then it's. Before all that, we actually have an October season that's archery. And now it's archery or crossbow in Jeez. the state of Maine. So my hunting, depending on tags, right, it can be a long season.
1: Yeah, which is great. That's, that's uh, <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> that's good. That's uh, crazy. So deer, deer even more than moose, is it because they're more challenging? Or? Well, no.
0: So in the state of Maine, you can, you, you can buy a license and uh, you can hunt a deer. And um, every year, right? So you can hunt a buck. We have a special system for, we just changed this about a year ago to an analyst permit. So the moose hunt is a lottery only because there's a limited number of permits. Mm. So on the deer side, the way it was since 1986 was you get your big game license, you can kill a buck. You can put in for a lottery to get an any deer permit. And what an any deer permit was was still a bag limit of one deer, and you could shoot either sex, but once you shot that deer like a doe you 're done mm. and we were using we wanted to use the anti deer permits to control our deer population in the state, especially coastal and south, where we have problems with you know Lyme disease deer, mm. deer ticks really bad in in Maine and gotten worse uh, road collisions moose uh, deer browsing on your gardens those type of things mm-hmm. and all states want to control a species like deer or something with the general hunt, with their hunting, right? That's what you ultimately want to do, because what are your other options? you got this volunteer workforce of right. deer hunters. And nobody's very few states have been successful in that, right? Because deer are just, you know, look at the bag limits down south in, in the southeast. I mean, it's crazy, the bag limits compared to where you and I come from. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that was the deal in Maine. one One deer for the rifle season, essentially. And then two years ago, we finally, or, a year or two years ago, we switched up and went from an any deer to an antlerless, which was a second deer. So now when I put in for my lottery for my deer, that means I'm going to have a second deer. I, if I get my lottery for the antlerless deer, I could shoot either a doe or a, a fawn. It's hard to switch between moose and deer. Right. And I can still shoot a buck. And um, that's the way that we're forging ahead in our state to control deer. Because if you have an any deer permit, what are you going to shoot? You're going to shoot a buck. buck, yeah until the last day of the season and then you're going to be like i'm going to cash this in so we weren't able to meet our objectives for dough harvest by doing that and i'm really proud of our department honestly that's smart for the for the way that they well it was a great idea to do but to actually get it done with the varying opinions of the of the public is a challenge and they did it and the public i think I'm guessing, I think they, they, they do like it. Um, I certainly like it as a deer hunter, and it had to be two deer. You just had to do that, and so yeah. that's exciting. Well, that's cool. But, but again, for moose, you put in for a lottery. You get a permit this year, then you have, and you, you have to sit out three years until you can put in again, and you build bonus points every year. I see. So you put in every year. I put in for my moose hunt. I get a bonus point, and then hopefully my name gets drawn in a random lottery. My last moose hunt was 2014. So oh, wow. I'm 10 years out.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. Wow, so it's, it's cherished.
0: Well, it's cherished. It's a, it's a weird thing that I'm going to have to be careful with here because we have a system that's different than the Western states where Western states use preference points. We have this randomized lottery with bonus points. That's different for non-residents versus residents. And when you have a hunt, I get a hunt, I can designate a subcommittee. So you could be my sub permittee and you can carry a gun, and you can shoot the moose. Wow. But you and I have to hunt together. I see. Like elbow to elbow. I see. Which causes problems. Yeah. Because you're in the big woods of Maine, and this is what the woods looks like. Yeah. And you got to be talking, be able to talk to me like this. So now we have two guns in the woods. Close and together. And we can shoot, but we shoot one moose. Right. Oh. And so there's been a lot of enforcement issues because of that,
1: and... Uh, do you like Lots that system? You, no? Oh, okay. Got it, got it. Understand. No, no. Understand. I don't I don't think safety wise.
0: I think, you know, from a enforcement perspective and you know, you don't need two guns. Got it. Uh our, our moose hunt has been going on for a long time, but it stopped in nineteen thirty two or thirty something. The moose hunt was stopped in Maine because this goes into a whole other story, but it's all about changes in the land and people. And in the 1930s, things were different here. This is 100 years ago, um, and the and deer were really coming into their own. There was a lot of small farmlands, uh, small logging operations. Anyways, the moose hunt was closed, and then in 1980, um, they were able to reestablish the moose hunt in Maine for the first time since the 30s. Um, and that moose hunt was controlled by the legislature as far as timing, number of days, uh, permit levels, all of that, with some input from the department for until 1999. Hmm. And then 1999, the legislature gave the reins of rulemaking that we were talking about uh, to back to inland fish and wildlife. So from since 2000, we've held the reins for developing permit allocations and all that. Um, so now we're into the 43rd year, essentially. There was one year that was skipped because of the backlash of so the 1980 hunt Opened and then they closed it in 1981 and then it reopened in 82 and it's been going ever since. Gotcha. So it's got an interesting history.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so I would think that since then the moose population has, I won't say exploded, but has gotten healthy, is, is healthy.
0: Well, not so much. It's, it exploded in the 80s due to this little insect called the spruce budworm that defoliated uh, the Northwoods. What's it called? Uh, the spruce budworm. Okay. And so this is, this is a known forest pest. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 1960s, the state of Maine was at a high point for the maturity of its spruce and fir in the Northwoods. And that, that insect attacked those trees, especially, I think, fir, and started to kill those trees. And so all these things are happening at the same time. So in the early 70s, it's, it's ravaging the forest in eastern Canada and Maine, northern part, and the forest is starting to fall down. And so the companies who own that land came in and were salvaging that wood. Makes sense for money. Mm -hmm. So we went from a late 60s mature forest, which is not good for moose, to a forest that's completely regenerating all throughout the decade of the 70s into the 80s, basically creating a feast for moose. So our moose took off to the point where Um, We opened our hunt in 1980, New Hampshire opened their hunt in 1988, and Vermont opened their hunt in, I want to say 92, it might have been 94, sorry Vermont, Um, but it fell right into that, right, and moose made their way all the way down to Connecticut, and we still have some moose in Connecticut and Massachusetts today. Wow. Um, And so the forest has changed quite a bit, and not only has the forest changed, which not everybody realizes in 40 years, but commercial forestry has changed. I mean, our last log drive on the rivers, river log drives in Maine was in the 70s. And then we started to have mechanized industrial forestry, and that's all changed. So they can cut faster, they cut larger areas, and they enter a stand of wood more times. And it's commercial forestry, so that's a great thing. What that does is it creates a forest for moose, Mm. which for me is not a bad thing. So our population just took off from the 80s, probably hit a high point around 2000. Okay, And then in the meantime, all these things are happening at the same time, including climate change. And what climate change has done to us, and whether people want to believe it or not, as we know that the data, the science shows is that our winters are two weeks shorter. Two weeks might not sound like a lot, but what it does is it changes all these things that are so tied together ecologically in the woods. And one of those things is this tick called the winter tick. And so we have various tick species in the state of Maine. And like I told you earlier, our deer ticks that spread human diseases like Lyme, Babesia, Ehrlichia, um are really bad, you know. And it's one of those interesting things where not only have the deer tick population exploded, but also, you know, dog or wood ticks have exploded. Um, and it's a big concern in this state because... Literally, you know, I've been here for 18 years, and I hate to even say this, but when I arrived here, where I live, never had to deal with ticks. There was no ticks. Mm. Not a concern. And then in, around 2015, because I remember this, I, was, I came back from a trip to Colorado um, for a moose conference. I was playing with one of my daughters in the back in the woods, and I had a deer tick on me and got bit by a deer tick. Like, what the hell? Uh, we've gotten to the point now where we, our dogs are both blonde. I have a blonde dog and a white dog. So when we're walking down the road and people think I'm joking and I'm not, when I walk down the road in the spring, when ticks are coming out, I know day one, Hey girls, Hey, my wife, we're going to start watching out for ticks cause they're on the dogs now mm-hmm. and deer ticks are serious, you know, cause you get bit by a deer tick and if it's not treated right, it's, yeah. you, you can be, have chronic illness. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, not only have we had uh, increase and in expansion of all these ticks, but winter tick is a tick that's different than these other two. <coughs> Excuse me. That's a good for your video. Um, so the winter tick is a one-host tick. So deer ticks have to be on three different hosts during their life cycle. So that once they bust out of their egg sac, they become larvae, then they morph into nymphs, then adults. For their life cycle, Mm. and on each one of those stages, they got to get blood meal from something, but they do it from three different critters. The winter tick does that same thing in one year on one animal. Mm. So right now, all the winter ticks are out there on the ground in egg sacs. And a female, when she drops off an animal in the spring, will lay up to over a thousand eggs in one little batch. Those are going to break out at the end of August, September, and those larvae crawl up onto a shrub, and they wait for somebody to come by, and they sense you walking by, and they cling to you like a barrel of monkeys, and all those ticks get on you. Jeez. So for most animals, except for moose in the main woods, <clears throat> they obviously have dealt with this in the past, and they can groom themselves, either by using their tongue or teeth, or for deer using their rear hooves. They can scratch and get those ticks off of them. Mm -hmm. while those ticks are larvae in the fall. So they might have taken a blood meal, but these ticks are the size of the edge of a pencil point. They're really small, so they're taking blood, but not a tremendous amount, even if you have thousands on you. Well, my my good buddy, the moose, is walking through the woods, and every day it's walking through the woods. It can avoid some ticks, but it's going to walk by and get some ticks on it, 1,000 ticks on it, 2,000 ticks on it, 3,000 ticks, 90,000 ticks. Jeez. So then those ticks are on the moose, and the moose don't sense that in the fall. So they have no defense in the fall because over the course of time, and we're talking about generations, um, they've been in that arms race where they don't recognize that these are on them. So those ticks take a blood meal, then they're dormant on the moose, and then they molt into nymphs December, January, and then they take another blood meal. Well, these ticks are a little bit bigger. Now they're starting to impact the moose from a physical, physiological standpoint. Mm. And the moose is starting to recognize something's on me, crawling all over me. And they start to groom themselves. So number one, a moose can have excessive grooming, which ultimately they can lose hair and dislodge ticks, which is good, but they can lose hair and they want to maintain their coat in the wintertime. So that's not good to lose hair in the winter. And instead of spending their... 24-hour cycle, feeding, ruminating, bedding. They're spending up to 15% of their day getting driven crazy by scratching these animals, scratching these ticks. Mm. So it drives them crazy. The nymphs then molt into adults, which are so visible that an adult female is taking a mill of blood as a minimum from, from a moose. Okay, so let's just say... Jeez. Let's just say for giggles, as they say you have 50,000 ticks on you, and now they're adult ticks, 50,000 adult ticks, let's say 25,000 are females. 25,000 adult female ticks are taking 25,000 mils of blood from your body, and so what this dynamic means is that if you look at a 800 pound adult cow, and she's got her 400 pound calf with her, and they each have the same tick load on them, um, the blood volume of the calf is smaller, and so more blood is being removed. Well. A moose in the wintertime does fine eating a browse diet, the tips of red maples, and eating balsam fir. But there's no protein to be had. And you need protein to build your blood, to make blood. Well, these guys are losing blood so rapidly they can't replace it with, on that diet with mm. no protein. And it causes them a state of anemia. Mm. And so they're actually losing weight. And so we've done research now for over for a decade, um, putting GPS collars on moose. Weighing them at capture, taking, you know, blood from these animals, analyzing all this stuff. Um, but what I can tell you is that a 400-pound moose in 12 weeks can lose 30% of its body weight, and it's dead. Jeez. And so we've seen two years ago I had 70 collared calves in January, which is an eight-month-old calf that weighs 400 pounds. Of my 70 moose, 61 of those died from winter tick. That's 87%. Yeah, it's shocking. So that was a bad year. And we knew that was coming because we can predict, predict that because we look at winter tick loads on moose in the fall at harvest. So that's been the worst year we've had. And what that simply means is that the following fall, your yearling cohort that would be available to hunt or view or whatever is not going to be there because mm-hmm. they died. Now, this past year, I lost 28%. So it completely changed course because of the conditions and the environment for the ticks. Mm. And with climate change playing games with us, um, when, we, when our fall is extended, remember I was saying to you, every time that moose walks through the woods, it picks up a 1,000 here, 1,000 mm. here. Mm. Well, when the rain and snow and cold comes, that shuts down the ticks, and they're not getting ticks on them anymore. So it's like a curtain coming down. So when that curtain comes down, do you have 20,000 ticks on you, or do you have 60,000 ticks on you? And how much do you weigh? Because that's going to decide whether you're going to live or die next Jeez, spring. Jeez, that's and
1: disturbing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why did you tell me that? Because
0: no, the, no, the Northeast is ground zero for it. Wow. So other states in the West and Canada and the upper Midwest have had what we, we call these winter tick epizootics. So that means that in a particular year, you lost this big number of animals usually calves, overwintering calves. And we've seen this in places, um, but in other states, like for instance in Minnesota, they have ticks, but they also have things called wolves, and I'm not making a judgment on wolves. They have other diseases um, like liver fluke that is inflicting their, or afflicting their moose population. I mean, there's winter ticks in Utah, and Utah's looking at, at winter tick. Um, and other states have other things. You know, Wyoming has has, um, uh, uh, an arterial worm that can kill moose. Um, There's lots of things out there that want to kill you. And with with moose, parasites is a big deal, internal and external parasites. So in New England, our problem has been attributed, and I say this cautiously, but really solely to winter ticks. If you took the winter ticks out of this conversation— Uh, our survival, we would not be having this issue. Because not only does it impact calves overwintering, trying to make it to their first birthday, but if you're a cow, that 800-pound cow, and she's pregnant, now she has to feed herself and maintain herself. And she's just, I hate to offend deer. I mean, I, I hate to offend moose by saying this, but they're just like deer in the winter, which is they get really fat in the summer and into the fall, and they use that fat over winter. And are able to mobilize that fat to survive to green up in spring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you're a cow moose, you go into a winter fat and you're pregnant, you have to now feed that fetus, and now you're getting fed on my ticks. Mm-hmm. So, I like to say you have both an internal parasite, which is the fetus, yeah. and then you have your external parasites feeding on you. And by the time calving comes in May, um, you may be in poor enough condition that you give birth to a calf that never makes it Mm. drop it on the ground it's dead wow and so we we've uh you know my colleagues and mentors who have done a bunch of research on this uh you know basically wrote an energetic paper lining all this out of how this afflicts an adult cow and why she ends up in may with dropping a calf that's that's not going to make it so we've seen this depressed reproduction um over time since our recolonizing of moose in the 80s Gotcha. So
1: you know what my next question is going to be then? I don't? Yeah, you do. What are you going to do about it? Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's the remedy? Yeah, so this this is the one that drives everybody crazy, right? And we hear about this all the time. And we take it very seriously because um, there is no easy answer and there's no really easy solution. Let's just put it out there right now because... So every year, you know, we have people constantly asking us about, well, why don't you spray the woods, right? Well, they did that experiment back in the 70s called DDT, yeah, right? That yeah. didn't wind up too well. And, you know, in the state of Maine, this is private commercial forest land. We're not spraying, aerial spraying anything, and anything that's going to kill a tick. If you've ever tried to kill a tick, they ain't easy to kill. Yeah, spraying them with something, yeah, that's that, that does work. but. You're not going to spray the woods. Our m- core moose range is 16,000 square miles. That's bigger than the states of New Hampshire, Vermont, probably Massachusetts all together is our core range, or maybe I misspoke. Maybe it's just New Hampshire and Vermont. It's a big area. Um, that's not that's that's a non-starter. We know that. So people are like, well, why don't you get the moose in your hand? Why don't you spray the moose? Why don't you do something with the moose? Well, you know, we catch 70 moose for a scientific study to try to understand the problem you don't just attack a problem by blindly going out and you know you got to understand what what you're up against yeah and even if you could let's say you wanted to do that like that's your tactic you're not going to do science you're just going to catch moose to put collars on them it doesn't work we yeah. know that Um a collar with tick aside doesn't work on a big 800 pound moose dosage wise Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can go on and on. Plus, if you have tens of thousands of moose, like we have in the state of Maine, how many do you need to treat in order to deal with ticks? And how much is that going to cost? For us to capture moose, when we do those 70 moose, like we'll do this winter, and it takes maybe a week, depending on the weather, you're talking about a cost of, I don't know, close to 150000 bucks. And there's a lot of other costs in there. And it's dangerous work. We'll catch them in a helicopter with a net gun. So, you know, the thing about winter tick, it's like an infectious disease, right, which is the more dense your population, the more you're going to have an impact. And since our moose increased throughout the 80s into the 90s, we were at a high density that people just don't see. North American moose populations exist at very low densities. Well, why do they do that? Because a 800, 1,000-pound moose needs to eat 10 times the amount of food that a single deer does every day. So deer can live together, right? Um, and they feed on different things. They feed on forbs, and a moose doesn't, you know, it's an eater of twigs, right? You know, it's got to it's live on a forest diet. You and I can't live next to each other when we're that big and survive. Moose have to be spread out. Moose live at low densities. That's, mm. that's the natural world of a moose. We've had densities that are so high— Um, because we provide that food. But the the downside of that is the winter tick, because the winter tick has a great life living on a moose. Well, if you have more and more moose every year, and the falls are easier for ticks to survive, you're just piling those ticks on those moose, and they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. And so how are you going to solve that? So what we've done from our scientific point of view is we need to reduce moose densities, even where they are in some places now, because a low moose density is going to have less parasites, whether that's winter tick or internal parasites. And so we have an, a so-called adaptive unit where we're increasing cow-calf permits. It's the same permit. Um, and trying to, you know, bring that population down by hunting, mm. which, again, back to the earlier conversations, what state agencies want to do. Um, but it's going to be a tough t- it's a tough road because it's tough to hunt cow moose um, late season.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is just me not knowing, being an idiot. Okay, so I'm just gonna kind of throw this out there.
0: Well, you're in good company then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: the, the big thing that I'm thinking about is, you're gonna you're moose are dying because of this tick, and then now you're gonna kill more moose because you're gonna you're trying to lower the tick load. You got it. Uh, w- what about? When you lower the, you, you're killing more moose, wouldn't the ticks just kill more? I mean, I, you're still lowering the tick load. I get that. But aren't you just, you're, you're killing more and the ticks are killing more initially. So then you're talking about just dropping this number way down, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm with so, you. so that's number one. Yep. That, that's where I'm like lost there. And, and the confusion yep. starts there. And where we head from there and what happens to the ticks then are the ticks still doing what they're doing, waiting for for more moose to come, and then eventually no moose? Or, and then the other part of this is, is the winter tick a problem for deer, bear? I mean, I mean, who is it a problem for? That's so two, two two part question.
0: Moose. Well, you hit the nail on the head, which is and I understand it, that everybody has that same issue, which is like, so you're telling me you're gonna kill more cows and or calves, and, uh, and that's gonna solve everything. You know, it doesn't make sense to me why you do that. So you need, to, you need to address the population issue first. How many moose are out there? You need less moose. Now, yeah, we, we don't know ultimately how many less you would need to break the tick cycle. And the thing about the ticks is that the level of the number of ticks that are out there are completely related to the number of moose that are out there. So you need to drop that tick population down. So it remains a question. Can you drop the moose population down? And can that result in dropping the tick population down to a point where if you ease off the gas and let those moose come back a little bit, is it going to happen again, all over again or not? Yeah, I can't answer that question, honestly. Mm. But less moose, right now, um, way better, you know, and don't call me a scientist. I mean, real scientists, that's what they would say, is that you have to have a low-density population to try to break those ticks. The ticks can survive on other animals, but they're going to survive at a very, very low density that's not going to be impactful, and we've seen that historically in our state. The unknown here is that you get the climate problem and how that impacts or does not impact the ticks. Um, so it, there's a lot of variables there that make this complex. But you but the lower density moose population, as we've seen, is where you'd want to be. Unfortunately, you're working a problem backwards. So for instance, in the, in the state of New York, they have some moose. And they're a low density population and they're not seeing tick issues because they haven't, hit that bubble where they got enough moose, a dense enough population, that, that the ticks have taken off with the moose. You but see what I'm have, saying? But do they have winter tick? I'm sure they do. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. They just don't have the abundance of tick, winter tick that we have. Mm-hmm. So we, hit a, we must have hit a threshold. So when that moose population was growing in the 80s and that tick population was coming up behind it and the, and the winters were getting shorter, Something got to the point where, yeah, the ticks just exploded with with the moose, and mm. you're too late. So there should have been a point back there when we cut down on the number of moose earlier to prevent that tick abundance from rising, if that was possible. We don't know if that's possible. I mean, it's theoretical stuff, so, but, yeah.
1: So this thing about um, lowering the tick load by... Again, I mean, yeah. I'm. I'm this coming from no, a, from an idiot standpoint. No, but <laughs> this this thing about killing more um, moose. What's a percentage in your mind that this would work?
0: Well, it's not so much a percentage because you're asking, you know, how many moose are there now in there, and what number do you need to get down to, mm-hmm. right? And so, when I say low density, we're talking in most places a moose per square mile one moose per square mile. That's really,
1: is that really low? That that's a normal
0: like... North American range. That, yeah. That's completely opposite of big deer populations, let's say. But we have populations that still remain in that area that are 5 to 10 per square mile. Mm. And that's a tremendous more amount of moose. And the thing is, the other thing to judge this as a metric is you want to see less death, by parasites that we monitor every year. You wanna see the tick loads that we see on the backs of these moose drop, which we've been measuring for 17 years. And you wanna see an increase in productivity, how many calves are being dropped on the ground every year, which we evaluate or measure by looking at the ovaries of cow moose in the fall hunt. So we can gauge what that productivity number looks like. And that's been depressed and we wanna see that increase. So we, w- we would, theoretically know that we're doing better when we get an increase in overwinter survival of our calves to the yearling age and when we see increased reproductive output of these moose. Mm. Okay. And we also see that because when we fly helicopter surveys in the winter, we do one survey to look at abundance density of moose and we do a separate survey when we look at sex ratios and juvenile ratios. So the number of bull cows and mm-hmm. calves So we'd like to see that calf-cow ratio increase over time. That would also tell us that that population is doing steadier, you know, Mm -hmm. with less ticks, if we could do that. The problem is, is we run into this huge social dynamic and perception of what this all means. And you, like I said, you nailed it, that people aren't comfortable and don't see, can't get their brain around that. And I get that. That's fair. It's a fair statement of why you would shoot more cows because, look, you know, hunting in general has always been biased against shooting females, and it's always been, I don't care if you're hunting elk or moose or deer, you know, getting people to to accept and appreciate that you need to kill some of the female component of to make a population healthier, that's a tough road to go down for anybody. And I'm sure there's other deer elk biologists out there who would agree with me, you know, in certain circumstances, especially in um, populations that aren't like crazy, you know, populations, like some of the white-tailed deer populations, you know, in more southerly states, you know, where it's like, well, of course, you got to kill some females in there for sure. But, mm. you know, you think about any game species and that can, that can be a challenge, any Non-bird game species, I guess. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I, I almost want to keep going down this road because I have more questions. <laughs> but go, go for <laughs> it. But I don't want yeah. to. Go ahead. I don't want to make it uh, boring for for anyone because I, I mean, I, I just want to. That's wanna, all right. I've
0: already bored them. I want to asleep dig anyways.
1: No, I want to yeah. dig down on this. Yeah, go some more because uh, it's a. It sounds to me like a humongous problem for for moose. So again, two two more yeah. questions. One is. Why, and you may have mentioned this, I might have missed it, but why is it that, um, I mean, you should just call this thing the moose tick. I mean, then why? I do is call that? it the moose tick, yeah. Oh, is it? So it is a moose but tick.
0: But it's, it's just confusing to people because, first of all, when whether you say moose tick or winter tick, um, they still think it's the same old, every tick, a, t- a tick is a tick is a tick. Mm-hmm. And a moose winter tick is so unique because of that one host, one year life cycle.
1: Yeah, and uh, again, I might have missed this, but why? Why is it? Why aren't they jumping on bear? Why aren't they jumping on deer? Why aren't they jumping on?
0: Well, it's 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 clearly these an- they get on those animals, but those animals are better groomers. I see. That's what we understand. I and the other thing, and I always forget the term for this of of animals living together for generations and generations. I mean, we're talking you know thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. The moose is much more of a newcomer to North America than the whitetail. Mm. So the whitetail deer has been here a lot longer and has had to deal with winter tick a lot longer. Mm. And so you know, biologists like to talk about this arms race of parasites versus the host and all this, and, and how over gener- generations, thousands and thousands of years, they, they, they have a different relationship with each other. But you know, my understanding of it is that the moose, again, being newer to North America Hasn't figured out in the generational time period, evolutionary, let's say, mm-hmm. um, how to combat winter ticks. Yeah, um,
1: shocks, man. This this turns into like a really uh, negative, sad <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I, I didn't want well, it to. Come, g- you know,
0: the thing is, is that uh, <laughs> so I get a book here. I'll, I can show you at some point um, that Dr. Bill Samuel from Alberta published white as a ghost, um, which refers to the rubbing uh, that a a moose does when the ticks are on them. And so if you grabbed the winter coat of a moose and pulled the hair out, you'd see that the tip of the hair that goes into the skin is white. And so when they're rubbing and breaking those hairs, they can get this white ghost-like appearance, which is winter tick. Mm. But Bill Samuel wrote this amazing book about the relationship of winter ticks and moose and all about winter tick. And it's a short book, very, very informative. But one of the things that Bill says in that book is, you know, don't let the ticks eat your moose. And so he's a proponent of saying that, you know, harvest is an important tool and you should continue to harvest moose. Yeah, yeah. And in our scenario, and Vermont's doing a similar thing, you know, you're going to try to control the number of moose out there by increasing your harvest. And that, gets us in a whole number, another realm of whether you believe in hunting or believe in moose hunting versus non-hunting. And you see where I'm going with all this. It gets very complicated. But, yeah. you know, one of the experts in the field, you know, the answer is not hunting. is not not hunting. That's right. not the answer. No, less, no. less moose is important. And look, you know, I've said to people, too, especially, you know, given my history. I mean, I, I don't know. It's a funny thing to be in this situation because I don't need to kill more moose tomorrow, Okay. But from a management perspective, it's the right thing to do. It's based on science. And, and how we do that, or, we, or can we do that, is a big old question mark. Mm. Can we? Yeah. You know, it's been, yeah. We're, we're, this will be our third year of that adaptive hunt. And by the way, that adaptive hunt, when I talked about that 16,000 square miles of core range, that da- adaptive hunt represents 6% of that core range where we're experimentally increasing harvest, it's mm. 6%. So when people get like, oh, my God, you're going to kill all the moose, no, we're not going to kill all the moose. 94% is not being impacted by that. You know, it's a small area that we, we really need to focus on.
1: That's a good point to make. That's a good point to make because in my mind, I'm thinking you're talking about the whole state. Like you're just everybody's yeah, no. going crazy. No, and,
0: and, and the other <clears> thing that's <throat> important too in this conversation is that, remember, this is impacting calves trying to make it to their first birthday that's what you know we had media coverage on this for the last decade ad nauseum and they'd always get it wrong you know all the moose are dying i'd see these headlines i'm like oh my god what have we done no all the moose are not they're not dying and when you talk about you know and then when you talk about health of a moose that's really really difficult because you may look at this moose and it looks awful and then you may look at this moose and it looks incredible And the thing about health is we're talking about health at the population level. And we're talking about health meaning reproduction, you know, normal reproduction relative to other moose populations. Where should that be? And we know it shouldn't be where it is now. We know it's depressed. And that's not healthy. It's not that every moose is walking around, you know, looking like a zombie. Um, There's some good-looking moose out there, and there's a lot of healthy moose out there. But yeah. That's a challenge to get across to people, too, because it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a concept that's very difficult to wrap your brain around.
1: Sure, you know? sure. Well, it's nice to talk about the challenges. I mean, because yeah. you got the, this is, sounds like something that needs to be addressed 100%, but, um, but I'm, I'm glad that we at least talked about that <laughs> a little bit. Um, lots but what I, rab-
0: There's lots of rabbit holes.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds like a big one. Um. But we haven't even gotten into moose yet, like 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 what you know about moose and like the the positive part of moose, <laughs> what they Not are much, no. what they are and everything. <laughs> yeah. I love <clears throat> I love that your your experience is vast in that you you were the deer manager for the state, yeah, and then you you have an experience with we have experience with elk and doing research with elk. So you have a, a really great background in this. Moose are the biggest deer species right? The largest, I should yeah. say, deer species. Um, can you tell just tell me about moose in comparison to the, the you've worked with the smallest or probably the smallest species would be deer itself, correct? Uh, deer and smaller.
0: Uh,
1: yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, like everybody in
0: wildlife, I've done all kinds of things.
1: Right. So, so background <laughs> on, uh, you, you are like the perfect person to talk about moose in comparison to these other, uh, there, I guess there are other cohorts, right? Yeah. So, so tell us about moose.
0: Well, and this goes back to your original question about getting into this field, which is, you know, <clears throat> moose are such a cool critter, right? And the thing about moose is, and we mentioned this as well, is that they, didn't, you know, some people think they eat grass and things like that. They don't. That's not a part of their diet. They don't eat low to the ground. So elk are grass feeders, right? Mm-hmm. And probably forbs. So you think of that open country right in new mexico and obviously they're in the forest too out there the pinyon juniper and other and up up in elevation and get into the dug fur or whatever um but they feed on these they they like these openings right and, the, and they're they're grazing in these openings i don't think elk ever made it past southern new hampshire i think historically if you looked at the records historically um because they are dependent on these openings right mm-hmm. now moose are also dependent on openings, but in the sense that trees fall down and little trees coming back up, right? And so that's what they're feeding on is the woody browse. Um, there's probably some of these forbs that they may eat, but really the majority, probably 80, 90% of their diet is eating shrubs, trees, leaf matter from these trees, you know, ripping off all the leaves. Um, then in the winter, eat, eating the, the twig ends off them. And that's what moose means in Algonquin, eater of twigs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you look at a moose and they're very powerful. They're huge, muscular animals and very long legs. In fact, a deer can walk underneath, you know, a full-grown moose, right? That's how, that's how tall a moose is. And since a moose lives in a northern environment, they're dealing with snow. And we know that, you know, for instance, a deer in Maine, when you get about 12 inches of snow on the ground, a foot of snow on the ground for a deer, that's going to be your energetic demand on a deer. Now you're going to start to use up more energy. Well, think about being a little fawn. In those Mm -hmm. same conditions, and now you're adding another layer of energetic demand and and problems. So when in Maine, when you get a bad winter, those fawns trying to make it to their first year, they're done. Because they can't, when you start to get past about, maybe it's 90 days, I'd have to remember my deer stuff. But there's a threshold where if you've had more than a foot of snow on the ground for X number of days, you're going to start to see kind of a die-off. It may be more like 120 days. I don't remember exactly, so don't quote me. Mm-hmm. Now you look at a moose and you go, well, this moose has long legs. Well, instead of 12 inches of snow being that threshold where you're starting to really increase the, the stress, the energetic demands on you, for a moose, we're talking three feet of snow, mm-hmm. three times the amount. You know, and, and as you know, I mean, even in New England where we get a bunch of snow, nothing like the West, although we like to think we get a ton of snow, um, in between events, snow gets consolidated, it packs down. And so you're not talking about a constant with that. But in snowy years, you know, moose, especially adult moose, snow is nothing to them. Now, there are years in 2019 where we had a lot of snow and it was unconsolidated. Think sugar. And so that's what the snow was like. Mm. And I remember I got a picture of me jumping off my sled. For those who don't know what a sled is, that's a snowmobile in main terms. Uh, That's how we get in the woods to do these necropsies on these dead moose. And so I was on a necropsy and I jumped off my sled. I was right up to my waist uh, in snow and couldn't really move. Okay, now you're a 400-pound moose calf, basically eight, nine months old at the time. That starts to be a demand on you. And in the year 2019, our two study areas, western and northern, where northern study area had much higher survival, when we're talking about ticks, Mm -hmm. now the the mortality rate was the same as the western unit because of that snow increasing that energetic demand. So you got all those ticks sucking your blood, and now you get got to wade through this sugar snow that's that's really Mm -hmm. deep for a long period of time. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But that's unusual for moose. And moose in places like Alaska, and when you get up here north of us into Mm -hmm. Quebec, there's enough snow that moose will start to kind of yard up like deer do. So that's when they're heading towards this softwood cover like fir and spruce in our state. Uh, there's also northern white cedar and some mixed white pine in there. But that's where the canopy provides some relief from the snow depths, and they can make trails into there. And that's what our deer do mm. um, for the wintertime. So that would be very extreme for a moose. But a moose in Maine, come February, mid-February, it's starting to get longer days. The sun's starting to hang out more. They're spending a lot of time bedded down. They're not going anywhere. And so we always hear people want to see moose. Yeah, I, I want to see moose. But we want to go see one today. Um, but in the wintertime, they don't go anywhere. In fact, um, so we've had moose with radio collars, GPS collars on them that we're, like, getting nervous about because they're, like, living in an area the size of this office. Like, <laughs> how can they be in such a small area? Well, they walk over there. They chew on some brows. They, they take some brows off, eat some fur. Then they go over there, and they chew on it. And, you, re, you know, chew their cud, uh, ruminate. That's what they do for several weeks until the snow is gone and they bust out and things green up and they're ready to calve. That's oh. the life. Wow. And so if a moose isn't going anywhere for the month of March and April, you, you're not going to see it because you're going to have to go to that moose. And best of, best of luck doing that.
1: Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So it's, you know, it's like deer and moose have that same, same and I hate to, like I said, I love to ha- ha- hunt, uh, hunt deer. Um, but I don't hold them quite to the esteem level as I do a moose. You know, moose are superior to deer. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to offend moose by, you know, talking about deer. But, but obviously their life strat- strategies are pretty similar. But if you look at the range of moose in North America, um, it's all across the southern Canadian tier. Um, you have moose in the Yukon, moose in Alaska. Um, they've, been, they've been pushing for, further north. But the strange phenomenon, too, is that they've extended themselves into the southern Rockies, so they're in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, New Mexico does not like moose in New Mexico. Because of the weather? They can, correct, they can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I'm not sure. When I was there 20, over 20 years ago, they didn't like moose coming into the northern New Mexico for whatever reason. Oh, I see. Um, and then you got moose that are in uh, eastern Washington state over into Idaho, um, and then the northwest, uh, I mean the, mid, the upper Midwest, so you got moose in Minnesota and North Dakota, um, western North Dakota, and a few maybe in Michigan, um, and then in the Northeast here. But Canada is the stronghold for the eastern moose out, out this way.
1: I see. I was going to ask you about subspecies when you were yeah. talking that way. So um, big difference in the species, the subspecies.
0: You know, I really don't know anything about them. There's four subspecies in in, in North America out in the in the uh, Rockies. There's the Shearers' moose. That's a little bit smaller. Um, of course you get the Alaskan moose, different subspecies, then you get the subspecies, the Canada moose and then the Eastern moose, and then there's some integrating there. But, you know, if you put them side by side, I noticed when I was in Alaska, the only thing I could tell you is that the, the Alaskan moose look a lot lighter colored to me and remind me of a grizzly bear. So frankly, that makes me a little nervous. Um, (laughs) you know, and, and again, that's, it's a bigger, bigger bodied bigger antlered moose, the Alaskan, Alaskan Yukon moose. We get some big moose out here, not quite as big as the Alaskan, but we get some big ones. Biggest moose ever shot in the state of Maine was in 1982 in Massardus, and it was dressed out at 1,300 pounds. So if it dressed at 1,300 pounds, um, we're talking about a moose that was over uh, 1,700, I think, a live weight, huge moose, had a wicked spread on it too, wicked rack. I got a picture of it someplace here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, But we have a weird thing in the state of Maine. So people shoot a moose in the state of Maine, And 90% of those people drag the moose out of the woods whole after they've gutted it, truck it out on their truck, bring it to the check station, which is mandatory, required to register your big game animals in the state of Maine, physically register them. Moose, deer, bear, wild turkey. Although wild turkey's gone to online electronic registration. But those other critters you have to bring to mom and pop general store. Mm. Get your coffee, get your beer, weigh your moose. (laughs) So we have moose weights from all these animals and. So every year we have multiple bulls that weigh in over thousand dressed. So you're taking the guts out, and they're still over thousand pounds. Jeez, that's a that's a big animal, yeah. Big animal in in you know spread wise in Maine, fifty to fifty five inch. Now you're talking a big, big spread. Um, but there's you know every year we get. Well, I don't know if I can say every year, but we get sixty plus inch moose. We've had we've had spreads to seventy inches. Mm. That doesn't mean they're the most beautiful antlers. Um, I mean, you get some smaller spreads that are just just amazing depending on the number of points and and how big the palms are on those animals. But, um, Mm. you know, it's an interesting place because I was talking to my buddy the other day. We were scouting deer on one of the islands and um, just talking about moose hunting and all that and and all the strange things we do in this state. But, um, you know, it's an interesting thing because you can do it yourself in Maine and you can go – kill a big bull you know if you got some experience and you're in the right place at the right time and you can do that yourself uh we only have a six-day hunt um so it's a short short hunt and it's very weather dependent and people are slow to get on this now because we our weather's so crafty and crazy you know we can have september that's or an october season or november where it's 70 degrees out Mm. and i'm telling you it you can see in the data that success rates tank when it's warm because you know moose are in the dark growth um which means they're in the shade Mm -hmm. and uh people in Maine are used to driving roads and hunting hunting moose from the road because it's a big animal where do you want to kill it next to a road right yeah because you're going to drag the thing out don't do that don't drag it out
1: (laughs) so um wow interesting uh man the comparison between moose and elk, and I mean, of course, deer. Other than the size, big comparisons, and you you uh, talked about the brows, like what they're eating. Yeah. So some some differences <coughs> there. But anything else that's like like uh, like a really big difference?
0: Well, I mean, I did my elk work over 20 years ago, and I've forgotten just about everything about them. You know, so I won't even pretend to know anything more about elk. But obviously, mm-hmm. elk are a herding critter. And, I, and uh, you know, I went on one elk hunt back 20 years ago and had no idea what I was doing. Um, but, right, you're seeing, you're seeing these bulls with their harems, with their, with their cows, when mm-hmm. you're talking elk hunting. And you have a whole different strategy there with your calling and, and the way that elk work. And, of course, you're dealing out there with topography, right? Mm-hmm. The, I mean, I'm guessing there's places where people hunt elk where the topography changes in elevation aren't that bad. That ain't what it's like in Maine, and that's not how moose are. And so, you know, our September hunt is the end of September, and the rut, the breeding season for moose is about two weeks long, and, and, you know, it starts to fade out because, you know, eastern moose are different than the Alaskan moose. The Alaskan moose are more the classic, I'm a bull moose, I got my ladies here, and I'm going to keep them here, and don't you try to come over and steal one away from me, right? So they're guarding that harem which I guess is probably elk-like. Mm-hmm. And eastern, eastern moose are like deer. Mm. So they're serial uh, breeders. So in other words, a bull moose is running around in the woods and he's checking everybody out, seeing if one, somebody is receptive to his advances. Mm-hmm. And if, if that cow is receptive, she's receptive for a short period of time. We're talking uh, maybe a 12-hour period in a day. Mm. And so he's hanging with her, and once he's bred her, he's going to move on to the next one. And so he's trying to, he's got two weeks to do this, man. He's got he's to gotta make his moves, and he's got to do this fast. And now we're talking about the difference between the Alaskan forest and the eastern forest. You ha- you can't watch everybody in an eastern forest because you can't see anything. Mm. So you're with that cow, and then you're moving on to the next, uh, it, once she's receptive or not. And so our hunt, our September hunt is based on around the breeding season, so you can call a cow, a bull in, Mm -hmm. just so you can do your cow bull calls. um, You can rake trees. You can do all kinds of fancy strategies to try to bring that bull in, and that's an exciting thing. We're talking good callers can bring a moose in right to them, like sometimes too close. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can imagine what kind of an exciting hunt that is because you can hear the bull coming in. He's vocalizing. He's slowly coming in. Moose are pretty cool because... A moose has an interdigital gland in their hoof, and they can use that hoof, and they can press down their hoof so gently that they can snap a twig, and they know what they're doing, and it's a creepy thing, and I mean creepy, cool thing. Uh-huh. They can walk through their woods, and they can, they can hit their antlers if they want to or not, and so they're announcing in this scenario where you're trying to be a cow, let's say, or a bull challenging this other bull— you can bring this other guy in, and he's coming in, and you can't see him, but he's letting you know, I'm coming, buddy. Are you ready? Are you ready to roll? Wow. And it's one of those things where it's like, <laughs> oh my God. And here he comes. Some bulls will come tearing in, some will come in slow, and they're making their vocalization. Um, and then in the main woods, the thing about moose in the main woods is they can appear like a ghost. And that's just a intimidating thing, where all of a sudden you know you're looking around through this thick woods and you hear him coming and you hear him snap a twig or you hear that antler hit or you hear him calling, and then all of a sudden he's there, and it's like then he's just standing
1: there you know yeah yeah wow. and, and uh,
0: so you know that's that's a pretty you know people who are able to hunt during that that first season that's a pretty impressive thing to do, and people like to I shouldn't use the word "play with moose," but we've had a real and it's not the best thing increase in people using um, electronic calls, hmm. and so they'll go into moose country and they and they just want to do this for kind of fun, and that can be you know you get a lot of that happening, and that can be a problem with people who actually want to hunt a moose in September. why would people do that? <clears throat> just, just, well because it's exciting, because I mean, you they can't see you it. can't blame people you know they want to see a moose, let's call in the, let's try calling in a big bull, you know. Not but, to hunt, not to hunt, no, but no, just to see it. No, you know, or or maybe during the hunting season, maybe they got a moose and maybe it's over and they, they stay out there. You know, it's like a recreational ah, thing. I see. Now, next we have an October hunt that's also a bull hunt. This year it's fallen a little bit early, and bulls are still breeding cows. But trying to call in a bull, kind of like turkey hunting, where, you know, they talk about turkeys being toms being henned up. So you get a situation where you hear there's a bull and a cow calling and you're calling, doing everything to bring that bull in, but he doesn't want to let go of that cow he's with. Mm. And so you have to go after it. And so that's a big challenge. And then that's followed by an antlerless or a cow-calf hunt where you could shoot either a cow or a calf. Mm. Um, so we essentially, right now, we have three distinct weeks, six days each. And then we have three weeks of the adaptive hunt itself. And this year we're going to have three weeks of the adaptive hunt followed by a week where if you didn't shoot your moose in the adaptive hunt, And you have an adaptive hunt permit, and you didn't fill your tag. You can go back the last week and try again. Interesting. Okay, that's new for this year.
1: Uh oh. Um, Knowing moose so well, would you say that they respond? uh, Their responsiveness is is better with cow or or bull calls.
0: Well, it it depends during during the rut. Well, it depends on the scenario you're in. I see. And it depends if there's other cows, and if you can detect if there's other cows in the area. So, you know, you know typically a, sequ- a sequence might be that somebody goes in and thinks there's moose in the area because they got good sign, right? Mm. And so they may start out at first light with a cow call mm. to hear if there's a bull responding to that or not. So then that interaction between the moose hunter and the moose depends on what the scenario is. And so, you know, so sometimes if a bull is coming in but not closing the gap, they may try to do some imitations of what a bull does, calling, raking, thrashing, to try to say, hey, I'm with a cow, and I got your cow here, you know, mm-hmm. so bring it on in. And so there's a little dance there between, you know, what the, what, what's going on with that bull and how that bull's behavior is and the hunter himself. I see.
1: With elks, sometimes I've seen this a lot where people just do, a, uh, just because they're so kind of spread out, they do a location bugle, yep. like just to throw out a bugle. Right. Um, similar with, with that, you, would you throw it like a location, like bull? Well, I don't know if you'd call that a bugle, but what, what would you call that when a, a, you're calling for another, a bull is calling another bull?
0: Well, you're doing it well.
1: Or a bull is calling. That, I yeah, a, say, bull a bull would be a, a
0: bull grunt. Grunt is Got what it. it would be. Got but it. It. It's interesting you say that because I never even thought of that comparison, um, just because we're so isolated from elk hunting. Mm. You know, and the bugling part and, and the location thing. But really what you're saying is, excuse me, probably holds true because you're going in an, into an area. When I, in my f- 2014 hunt, which was a big woods hunt, um, you know, my strategy was, uh, is I scout, 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 and I'm looking for fresh sign including wallows, so those, these moose in the okay. height of the rod make these wallows, these mud pits, that, you know, that they urinate in, and then they get in that and they splash, and they try to get that all over themselves, and it gets nice and stinky, and then the cows will come and lay in that. So if you find a fresh wallow, uh, you know, you're in a place where there's some hot sign. So you might go into a place like that, and you're like, I know, that, you know, there's fresh sign here, and then you're doing a cow call, which is a long, drawn-out cow call, um, that you're trying to, what was your word you used? Bugle. On? No, not bugle. You said um, locate, location locate. bugle. So it's yeah. like, yeah, you're, so you're doing this thing where you're like, you're broadcasting the call, yeah. right? And you're trying to figure out, do I hear a bull grunt and where is that direction? And mm. so then from there, you're trying to, you'd probably do the same thing where it's like, man, he's, he's out there or, you know, he's closer and here's the direction then you're trying to play the wind and all that. When mm. I In my hunt, We had all these places set up, and we wanted to hunt close to the camp we were at. And uh, the morning we went in, we went into one spot where there was a small wallow, called in the dark, didn't hear any responses. Um, And we decided to move up further in that area, which was an old road, logging road that you couldn't get up in a vehicle, which was awesome and wet. So we went up that road, and we turned this bend where there was a lot of moose sign we had seen earlier when we scouted up there and we stopped and we heard bulls and cows calling to each other right there. So okay. we basically set up right there, mm. uh, you know, set up a, a tripod shooting pod and we kind of waited cause it sounded like they were coming our way. And that's exactly what happened. We didn't mm. do anything. Gotcha. They came to us and that was October season. Interesting.
1: Yep. So, um, as far as their nose versus their, their eyesight, yep. um, playing the wind in that thick timber, that thick forest, What's what are their strengths? Is their strengths their nose? Because I've seen... Well, it's their
0: nose, their nose and their ears. I mean, you, oh, know, hearing. you know, and it's this whole thing where, you know, any of these animals and a moose being the, you know, one of the names for a moose is old bucket nose. So you get this huge mo- nose on it. So when a, if a moose is, a moose can't look at you directly. If you and I were looking at you like this with my big moose nose, I can't really see you. So I got to kind of look 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 like this and that's giving you the, the eye yeah um they can rotate their ears independently and you know they're kind of using their ears like radar mm-hmm. and and their ears are probably the biggest biggest thing out there but their nose is tremendous as well so you got a you know there's no question as you know you know whether it's deer hunting or anything else wind mm-hmm. is everything i mean that's mm-hmm. the fastest way to blow your hunt Uh, is when the wind switches or you're not playing the wind right or of course hunting on a calm day and then then you wind up with the problem that hunting on a calm day is also good because you can hear you can hear these guys um vocalizing and so it's that whole mixed bag you know it's like you know hunting in the rain is great but you're not going to be able to hear and then um so all these things are going on but yeah absolutely ears ears are are the big thing and and nose ears and nose not so much the eyesight because i've seen them walk right
1: up to to people that are, you know, making... I'm like, the thing is walking right up to him. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, it, you know,
0: they, you know, it's a weird thing, because, you know, moose are different, and not all moose are the same, you know, and, and it's the same thing whether it's a cow or bull, and that, you know, moose... People get the perception that moose are very tolerant of people. And, yeah, maybe they are. Maybe they're more tolerant than deer, which tend to be skittish, or other critters. But, you know, you can't be fooled by the fact that they have their bubble and you don't want to break that bubble, mm-hmm. right? And and they're fast, and they can kick some, you know what? And, um, you know, that's evident. You know, when we get calls around here in town that a moose is in town, and I ask, you know, so what's that moose doing? If you can walk up to that moose and pat it on the back, well, something's wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something's wrong. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, to a, to a point. But, yeah, in the, in the main woods, um, you know, People see them on the roads, and, and depending on the pressure, I think from the past and the number of people out there trying to drive these roads and see moose, some are more skittish than others. Some are getting the hell out of dodge, and some stand their ground a little bit more. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: is their their eyes? You didn't mention too much their eyesight. You mentioned more their ears and the nose. <laughs> is that why some hunters carry those paddles? Because they can yeah. they can you know put that paddle out there, and the moose is looking at you out of the corner of the eye because they can't see you because of the nose and yeah. they're like, okay, that's, that might be the yeah. the palms waving.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody knows exactly how what moose eyesight looks like, but right. like you say, there's people who do the the dance with the antlers. Um, one of the big moose experts who, who, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, Vince Crichton, kind of a legend in our moose world um, actually had a, like a bull head with a harness on it that he, able to put on his chest and use and he did a lot of behavioral work with looking at moose and their reactions to him as a moose um but you you know you can google youtube anytime and see these videos where guys are doing getting way too close you know you know to moose and doing doing some crazy things i got it plenty on my computer interesting yeah interesting
1: um wow you mentioned uh uh, like kind of a moose special like uh what did you call him uh um, the moose
0: guy. I already forgot. Yeah, <laughs> not a moose whisper. <laughs> it might be yeah, a I mean, moose whisper.
1: Yeah. But I was gonna say that isn't that you now? Aren't you? I mean, no. Well, you mentioned when we for oh. before we press uh, record when they when they put you in this moose biologist position. Oh, right. You're like, hey, I'm not a moose biologist, but at what? How many years in do you say, okay, I'm a specialist at moose?
0: Well, that's the same thing people ask in Maine. How many years does it take a deer to become a moose? And we know that's three and a half. They change into a moose. You uh, never heard that? No. We get, we get that a lot. I didn't know. No, funny. I mean, to, your, you know, to, your, to what you're saying, it's, uh, I, you know, I'm just one of those people who I've been fortunate, very fortunate in the jobs that I've got. I, you know, I have education, I have experience, but it's, you know, it's never enough. I mean, and something like Moose and what I do now, I mean, I've only been with the department 18 years, but, you know, I, I appreciate Moose for all those things. And I think they're just, and, and I don't, I have so much to learn, you know, and, uh, I'll retire and I still won't have known what I want to know. Um, but I appreciate the experiences, a guy who works for us, his wife, was surprised one day because I was driving up the highway there and at the DOT, Department of Transportation building, there's a salt lick and the moose are in there. And I'm, I pulled over on the road and was looking at these moose and she pulled over, coincidentally because she lived up there. And she's looking at me like, what are you doing?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and I'm like, I'm looking at the moose. She's like, haven't you seen enough of those? You know, it's like, no, no. I mean, every moose I see, I think, wow, you know, what's, what's going on here? And, um, you know, I can, I don't think you can ever know enough.
1: No, that's great. I, I'd love to hear that, especially from a, yeah. what I would consider, anybody would consider a moose expert. You're a moose expert.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm a, I'm a guy who, who focuses on moose every day I'm lucky to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to understand things because, you know, I, I'm a public servant, you know, I'm a, i am work for state and government. Uh, I have a job to do, which is manage moose for the people of the state of Maine and visitors. Um, and I want to do that to the best of my ability. And I've been lucky because I've been here where we had no resources. So you and I were talking about becoming the deer biologist and then you find out you have no resources to do anything. So you can think of all the things you want to do. Um, you know, I always tell people, if I woke up tomorrow and you told me I was the moose biologist, what would I want to know? And I tell you, I want to know how many moose I got out there, what they are, how many bulls, how many cows, how many calves. I want to know survival rates of adults versus calves, and I want to know how many produce every year. I want to know those things. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, as I told you, I have an aerial survey program where I can hit a couple of those things. I have moose with GPS collars where I can look at survival and causes of death. Um, All the harvest data where we we collect about 90% of the teeth from moose that are shot. So when you bring your moose to a check station, we cut out a canine which is different than all states, which use incisors to age deer or elk. Cementum annuli, mm-hmm. so they slice the teeth and count the rings. So our buddy Randy, when he was the bear biologist, he would read those teeth in the fall right here. We're the only state who does that, where we collect all the moose teeth. We could have two thousand of them, and we age those to the specific age. So you kill a moose, um, you can look on our website. You know, the fall and winter, and you can say, hey, oh, my moose was six and a half years old. That's cool. But I can use that to look at the age distribution of bulls and cows in a management district. And that tells me something about what that population looks like. And I can take the age structure of those cows and I can look at their reproductive rates based on the age of those cows. So, you know, do I have any yearlings calving, for instance, which seldom happens. You know, two year olds, three year olds and up. It gives me a lot of information on how productive the, this moose population is. So. Mm. All those four elements there, I'm working on, and we collect data on every year to inform our decision-making for managing moose. And we're lucky to do that because it hasn't always been that way. Yeah, that's a
1: lot of information. Yeah. And I, that's neat. So you're the only state that does that? That, uh, that You said rig, ring annuli? Oh, wait, no. Cementum annuli. C- c- cementum we're the, annuli. We're the only
0: state that does that in-house. So there's a, there used to be a company in Montana called Matsons, and all the state agencies that collected teeth, for aging, whether it's elk mm. or deer or sheep or whatever, would send that to Matson's to get aged, or bear. Mm. Um, I can't even tell you the genesis of how we started to do that in Maine except that the origin of our hunt was a much smaller hunt. I can't even tell you that. It was, it was less than a 1,000 permits every year. So we had a small number of moose being harvested starting in 1980 and my assumption would be well, we want to look at the teeth and look at the age structure of our moose. So we better figure out how to do that here. Because yeah. when you send that away, it's going to be a whole other year to you get it back. We have a moose hunt September, October. I know the ages of those animals by December, January. Awesome. And that's all compiled. Oh, that's great. So, but it's a pain in the, to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we have people down there fleshing teeth all day, fleshing teeth. And then we have a special antiquated cutter to slice those little teeth teeth out the little slices the little biscuits and then randy would put those in solution just a little bit and look at under a microscope and look at the rings on those teeth to age those moose and it's highly specialized looking at moose teeth and it's nice to have somebody like him who's done it for 30 years reading all those teeth oh that's cool and that's you know talk about being an expert yeah yeah uh, hard reading work. thousands and thousands of teeth yeah
1: uh, hard work good results yeah I'll tell you that um, I read somewhere that um, that moose could be good uh is it labor animals or labor of love animals where they they use them kind of like as or i don't know if they have, but they could use them as like like a mule or a horse because they're they're loyal they're intelligent if you if they're raised by human beings is that true or have you seen that i
0: well you know have you seen it, that i don't know I have oh. Well, I've seen fictitious ones. So there was a there was a couple of pictures going around from you know Canada or Alaska with basically moose dressed up like draft horses. But if you look closely at the picture, there's some things that aren't right. Like you can <laughs> see green up and and the the antlers or something wasn't quite right. I so see. that was Photoshop. But in uh, in Russia, they have uh, moose milkmaids. They have a place. Is it Russia? I think it's Russia. It might have been Scandinavia. You'll have to check this out. But they had a place where they had taken orphan calves and they raised them and milked the females. And it's just this crazy scenario. It's this one place in the world. Um, and then I got a crazy video from someplace in Scandinavia. I don't know if it's Finland because it's in some other language where the guy's got a adult that he raised and he brings it in his house and it lays down on on his bed with him. And it's it's hilarious. I'll have okay. to show you. yeah. So, um, yeah, there's things like that out there, but, you know, obviously in a place like the United States, you can't possess a wild moose. Um, there's a cat, Alaska is a captive moose place. We have a captive moose down in our wildlife park in gray. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just not something that really happens. But to your question, I mean, is it possible Maybe it is bring it up, I've never done it, but yeah,
1: it sounds it sounds the those those are those are wacky scenarios that we we' kind of discussed, but yeah. there was a serious article I read you know, in preparation for you. I was just kind of reading about moose, and one of them said that they're incredibly loyal when you know brought up by humans I don't know if it was like a European article or what, but right, and then also that um and I forget the term that they use I want to say they they said labor of love animal or oh, something yeah. along yeah. those lines. But I it imme- I immediately thought of either a mule or a horse or something. If they're number one intelligent, yeah. if they're loyal, if if they'll kind of do what you if you raise them as uh, you know, from a calf, right? Yeah. That's the proper term. Right, yeah, calf. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah. In your, well, they in, get they got a decent sized brain on them. Yeah, yeah. But right? they get themselves in a pickle quite often. Yeah, and you know, I hate to say it, but they haven't figured out the tick thing yet. So
1: yeah, okay, so they might not be that smart. <laughs> no, no, I think they're, I I'm think kidding. they're the
0: smartest I'm, of the deer I'm, I'm family, kidding. of course. No offense to all the elk hunters out there, but uh-huh.
1: no, my, that, that was just a thought of mine. I was like, I wonder if there's ever been like a, yeah. a uh, like, I don't know, like a study done on 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 their intelligence and to see if they could be used in, in those kinds of ways and how intelligent they really could be.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to ask somebody like the that Alaska center that raises those things from calves and maintains them as adults. Really? Yeah. It'd oh. be interesting to ask somebody like that. who's was dealt with that from a almost domesticated standpoint.
1: Really? I didn't yeah. even realize that. So That's in Alaska? Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Is there such thing as a, like a moose farm? You know how some places have elk farms or deer farms? Well, that's farms? the
0: thing I was telling you about in Russia with the moose milkmaids. Uh, that's I see. basically what they have. And there's, I, I, if I wasn't so old, I'd, uh, I could remember the name of that. Like, I want to say it's like Costroma or something.
1: I see. Uh, More along the lines, though, of like high fence operations. Oh. Does that make sense? No. No, nothing like that? No, we have
0: high fence here, and those are all um, non-native species. You would not be allowed to high fence a native species in this state. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, so red deer, sika, uh, fallow, those type of things. Right. Oh, do you have that here? Yeah. Like in high, high fence. High fence. Yeah.
1: Oh, so oh wow. Yeah,
0: we have probably twenty or so of these places. Again, I don't know the number. In Maine, that do yeah. that do outfitting for yes. red deer and yeah. wow, yeah, that's incredible. well they they have them enclosed.
1: Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. yeah. Almost like uh, Texas. Like Texas yeah. has like all these crazy species that does high fence and however you want to think about that. Right, Yeah. Um. So, uh, the hunting part of it, you're you're. When you do draw a tag or when mm-hmm. you get, get a tag uh, from the lottery, what's your caliber of choice or what is your, your weapon and or caliber of choice if you're going to go hunt moose?
0: Well, that's, <laughs> that's a great one because, I mean, God, how many opinions do you want on this one? Right. Two, two million? Uh, you, can, you can actually use whatever you want. There's no limit. I mean, you can't use a, you can't use a 22 rimfire. Um, you know, we, have a, we used to have a whole list of recommended cartridges, which excluded some of like the some of like the handgun cartridges, like three fifty seven, forty four mags, something like that. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to use on a moose. So we tend towards bigger cartridges, usually something above a thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that being said, you can look in you can look and see what people shoot moose with it, and it's everything, you know, from two forty three, uh seven M M O eight is very popular. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's my deer gun. So I'm a fan of that. But of course you can get different grains you can get a bigger grain bullet in there. We, A lot of people talk about a minimum of a 130 grain bullet for a moose. Hmm. The thing that irks me a little bit about it, and again, I'm not an expert on this, is that, especially with a moose, moose are all about shot placement, you know, and you know, people will say, well, they got a thicker high, they got this, they got that, but you know, a killing shot to the heart and lungs is going to kill a moose. And, and that's evident. If somebody can kill one with a two hundred forty-three versus a, you know, a three hundred wind mag, you know, um, there's obviously lots of room in there. The problem with moose is that, um, you know, and this, is, this goes into this whole conversation about subpermitte and everything, and my distaste for subpermitte stuff is that, you know, ultimately if you had two people, if you and I are hunting together, One of us would be a shooter and one would be watching the moose. So I could, you could see where that moose was hit and see the reaction because we have lots of circumstances where a moose gets hit and then it takes off and the people are like, ah, you know, I didn't get it. And then they don't do their due diligence in trying to recover that animal, which as you know, is everything. Yes. Right. And so, um, you know, you, you guys, you've talked to all the Western guys about elk and all that and. And we know these type of things, which is, you know, it's not often that an animal drops in its tracks. And of course, in the state of Maine, you're talking about thick woods. And that added challenge of tracking an animal in thick woods. And, you know, we also have a whole problem though, even though the woods are thick, you can get into cuts where you have some visibility and you can take a longer shot. And if you're not used to that, um, you know, it needs to be ranged you know, depending on the caliber you use. So, you know, we can really go into the weeds and all this, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the bottom line for me is that, you know, somebody, you need a caliber for that one gun um, that you're confident in shooting. You know, obviously, you'd rather always have somebody who's dead aim with that gun of choice, whether that's what somebody might think is undersized versus something that's bigger. My hunt, um, in 2014, I had a 270. That was the biggest rifle I had at the time. Uh, that was only a 130 grain bullet. Uh, that was a close shot. that was a 20 yard shot. Mm-hmm. And that moose didn't move. It just stood there and took it. and I shot that animal twice, and it was dead, but it didn't just drop over, right? I have a 35 whalen now, which is a bigger caliber bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, they, what do they call that the poor, poor man's magnum mm-hmm. the 35 whalen. Um, but, you know, that's that's the whole thing with, you know, ch- guns, choice of ammo, your type of ammo that you want to use, range, what you're confident with, and with a follow-up shot, uh, being able to ha- handle that and steady your nerves and everything. But ultimately, for a main moose hunt, I'd love to see the sub permittee wearing a pair of binoculars and not carrying a second gun. Um, I, don't, I don't believe myself that there's a need to have two people simultaneously shooting or following up shots, and, and just that gets into some craziness. You know, you as the hunter, you're responsible ethically for a humane kill of that animal. Um, maybe that's enough said. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, but the follow-up follow on a moose that takes off is absolutely critical, and people should be spending a lot of time to make sure that they understood, now, that's where it was. That's the distance. Here's where it was. And now I'm looking for sign, and I'm following up on that and grid searching, whatever you've got to do. Mm. Uh, on that animal and the problem is is that okay I'm going to say it is that the other problem we have out here is that it's warm in the fall and that that makes a big difference not only for your hunt and the behavior of the moose um, but for the meat care part And, and I you know people get sick of me talking about it but you know we have videos all over our website now how to do a gutless method how to quarter a moose um, you know, to think that somebody would shoot a moose that's, you know, eight, nine, 900,000 pounds, drops it in the woods, and then you're trying to twitch that moose out. I get, I get the interest in that, you know, and it's fun, and I, and I do get that, you know, like trying to, how are we going to get this thing out? But if it's 70 degrees outside or 60 degrees or 50 degrees mm-hmm. out, you get this animal that you've, you've, you know, you gutted the animal, and now you're trying, it's still got dark, Dark hide on a hot day, and you're taking hours to get this thing out onto your truck, and then you're driving it down a dusty dirt road, miles and miles and miles to get to the field station. Um, you know, I mean, it's just you know, in the West, as you know, uh, you know, people quarter their animal and game bags and all that, and we've really been preaching that for years now, Mm -hmm. and we see more and more people doing it, but you know, that's that's one thing. You know, I want to preserve every little sliver of meat, yeah. Uh, and I don't want to take any chances. I feel like it's a, in some ways, it's almost a race. So if you shoot a moose and then you you're out there quartering it, it's not a race. You get it done. You're cooling that moose down. You're taking the hide off. You've parted out the pieces. You got them in game bags. Yeah. And now you're heading out. You're heading out of the woods, man, and back to camp. But the other way around, you get this huge animal, and every year. You know, I check lots and lots of moose at the check stations, and they come in, and the hind quarters are laying against each other, and people will fill the chest cavity with ice. They'll buy ice. But it's it's a problem. You know, it's a problem. I wouldn't want to spoil one one ounce of that thing. That's some good meat.
1: Yeah, I'm getting from you that that's a big deal. <laughs> um, and that's something you honestly don't think about. I mean, unless you're a, uh, like a seasoned moose hunter, knowing that. Um, you have to really be prepared for a humongous animal down and be ready to go and, and not be backtracking, uh, and trying to figure out, oh my gosh, and, and rushing you have from the time you, you start your hunt, hmm. you got to be ready for a moose down is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. And, and I think you have to have multiple plans, and right? You, you got to know what the weather is. You got to know what the temperatures are. And, um, you want to be prepared for that, and you know, it is it is interesting every year, and there's a lot of good hunters out there, don't get me wrong, um, but it is amazing when you always you always hear that refrain, you know, especially on the first hunt where the animal's down and the first reaction is, God, that's a big animal, you know, and it's, it's an interesting concept because if you really are surprised by that, that's one thing. If you're just saying, geez, you know, it's big, you know, versus shooting a deer, yeah, you know, but... The other part of that is how do you handle it? You know, and if a moose gets all stoved up, up against a tree um, and you're trying to move that thing around, um, you know, we're always telling people, bring ropes, come alongs, whatever. I mean, think of all the gear you could start to have. And, and I, you know, for me, I hurt my back years ago on a live moose, darting a live moose and pulled out my back. And ever since then, I've had to be very, very careful, you know, mm. with my back because you throw all your back and a lot of the guys out there probably know this, that you're done. Yeah. you know and you can be in you're like not moving so you don't want to do that on a hunt so you get a moose that's all stoved up in the trees and you're trying to maneuver that thing around my god if it's it's one thing you know we get a lot of people who have big parties of people out there 10 guys or whatever but if it's you and me you know we can do that but we got to be strategic about this right. you know how are we got how are we gonna do this and obviously cutting that moose up into pieces is a way to go and then the only thing we have to worry about is how, how we're going to pack it out and that you can you can stage yeah So yeah. interesting
1: yeah that's great um can we take a just a quick intermission here for one second oh yeah all right okay live yeah thanks for that intermission that I, two cups of coffee and
0: yeah. oh I, that's how i roll man i'm always stopping yeah, yeah. um so uh
1: Again, we we talk a lot off of record here, and we were just talking about um, archery and crossbows and that kind of thing. Oh.
0: That's my, that's my daughter.
1: Oh, that's a nice picture.
0: Yeah. With oh. moose. Wow. you mobilized. But anyways, I digress. Go ahead. Sorry. No,
1: no, it's okay. That's cool. Well, since you mentioned your daughter, we were going to talk about family anyway. Yeah. I, I, um, I kind uh, <clears> of <throat> prefaced uh, family and hunting and that and – that, um, interaction I just call it interaction but that kind of um meandering between the two cultures of you know uh, having a hunting and wildlife background and and taking that home do you see a correlation there after what we talked about a little bit
0: well yeah I mean it's it's a thing is that we we were kind of talking about this earlier is depending on how much of a pastime or passion hunting is it can really overtake everything including your house. Yeah. <laughs> Just definitely. with the gear alone and I was telling you that you know a friend's daughter was over one time and looked around our house and it's like why do you have so many pictures of animals? You know, and it's like, well, my wife's a wildlife biologist, I'm a wildlife biologist. Um you know, I'm, you know, as a hunter. I mean, the joke with my buddy is always you know it's, it's May or something. And I'm like, when's deer season start? You know what I mean? It's like, you can't get here fast enough. Right. You know, it's like, we got to wait till October. My God. So it's, um, you know, in Maine, I think, you know, I've lived in the Southwest. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I've lived in most, mostly rural areas, but you know, Maine is definitely a hunting place. You know, Maine is a, the hunting heritage and i like that term is definitely ingrained in the state and we got we got some people a lot of people are passionate about it it's a normal uh activity i think i don't think people are shocked for the most part by seeing blaze orange you know out during the fall um you know we have a lot of opportunity here obviously with different hunts Um, and so you know i think it's I hate to I mean it's pretty normalized if that's a, a word to use in the state. Sure. And you know, and and you know, clearly in the moose hunt, that is in many ways a family affair. You know, so when we look at moose hunting in my view from a really positive standpoint, one of the biggest things is families because with the whole sub and that's been a big driver with subcommittee system, which is you know, you you and your you know, a grandmother and granddaughter can go out hunting and because of the subpermittee they can hunt together both carry and it can be a real educational learning experience um, you know last year I had a local guy whose father got a permit he got a permit and his daughter got a moose permit three moose permits not a fan myself if you live in the same house because how many moose does a house need but anyways mm-hmm. that's a different subject but I met this guy and it turned out wicked wicked nice guy nice family And, you know, they made, you know, basically T-shirts to honor the hunt between the three generations. They were all successful. Um, They had a a great, great time. And, you know, I didn't get that experience. You know, you and I talk about this, right? You know, my grandparents are gone. Mm. Um, My father's not a hunter. So I don't have a family experience except the other direction. And so I, being a late-onset hunter, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, but being a very avid hunter had to figure out, how am I going to introduce my girls to hunting? And so, you know, when they were little, they're they're teens now, basically. When they were little, you know, I tried with showing dressing up birds. They know what I do for a living, obviously. They've been out with me. My oldest daughter's been out with me to dart moose and things like that. So they see that, but, you know, kids are their individuals. You know, there's the whole nature-nurture people always talk about. And when you have a kid... um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of nature there that they're just born a certain way, and that's the way it is. And I have friends who have kids who one kid is like the ultimate hunter, like seriously, like from day one. That's all they want to do. Can't wait till the day they can carry and hunt. And then the other kid could care less, mm-hmm. do not care. And I have so many examples about that. My daughters, my oldest daughter, um, when she was younger, she's 15 now, she wanted to hunt with me, and I couldn't believe it. So uh, turkey hunting, uh, we did some bird hunting, and we went deer hunting. And when I found that out, I literally went out to Dick's Sporting Goods. I went out and bought a deer stand, buddy stand. I bought her hunting boots. I bought her a 7mm-08 compact, uh, camo pants. I mean, I was like, yeehaw. <laughs> so, you know, she, we were never successful for her, for a deer. You know, when you're stand hunting, you can't. Still hunt a deer with uh, another person, and and it was really interesting because I didn't know how to do this because I don't come from that, but I tried. And she doesn't hunt now, but she you know it's something she's got a lifetime license. Both my kids do; they'll always be able to go to that if they decide, and they could change, mm-hmm. you know. You never know, but you know that's 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 kids, and that's that's their growing experience. And I tried the best my way without any pressure, you know. Um, but they've helped me, you know, when I'm processing deer, you know, and vacuum sealing and stuff like that, and mm. and they they enjoy that, and and you know, between them and my wife, they all make fun of my hunting, so and how passionate I am, but so it's all good. No,
1: that's great. <laughs> I I've always seen um, even if, even if it's in a small degree, the, a really positive impact that I've that I that I've thought that I see clearly in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, certain people. The way hunting and and the outdoors has on a family, um, some in some, like uh, my really good friend in in uh, Hawaii in Molokai, I mean really positive impact with his boys. I mean yeah. they're uh, they're one big cohesive unit when it comes to hunting. They that's something that they have in common. That's something that they love. Iron sharpens iron type of thing with those boys as well. Um, yeah, and I was just wondering how, how it feeds into your life because it's, uh, it's a really positive experience for them, not only from a culture cultural standpoint and bringing their family together, but also like they're up in the mountains and they're for fitness yeah. and, and being outdoors.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is different because you talk to the same, you know, another biologist, and, and we got lots of examples here whose kids are just way, way into it. Mm. But that, you know, that brings in a whole other set with your family dynamic and how your family is and how busy they are and all that, you know. Right. But at the core of it, and I think what you're saying is that, you know, and, and especially in this day and age, which is, you know, it is important, incredibly important for all of our kids, whether they hunt or not, to have some experience and relationship with the outdoors. Mm-hmm. We, we we know that. And, you know, there's books on it and there's all this stuff. But, you know, we've got a planet that's, that's uh, you know, there's lots of trouble out there. You know, and we obviously need to cultivate people who aren't living in the middle of the woods to have an appreciation for wildlife in the wild places. And that's a huge uphill battle and we all know that. And hunting is a is a step for that. You know, it's a great mechanism. I think my kids, although they're not hunters, um, you know, appreciate what I what I try to do and what what I try to put on the table. And that's clearly a big part for me, which is um yeah i love to hunt uh, you know okay i love to hunt mm-hmm. but the the meat part of it is is just as important to me and being able to have deer in the freezer is a big deal for me and provide that for my family and that's also why like not to make a plug for copper but that's why i go all copper yeah <laughs> ammo but um yeah so that's that's pretty important stuff and and uh, and there's a matter of pride with that we already talked about that but um yeah, the food appreciation is a real big one too. Yeah.
1: Even if it like you were talking about your daughter, you, you bought her all that stuff and you got her out in the stand. Yeah. Just for her to appreciate the fact that hey, this is from the start of actually taking a life to having a roast on the table. It's there's a whole uh, you know right. process.
0: To yeah, that. and that's a whole, right. That's a whole another huge component of this is you know when you hear some of the crazy things out there about where people think their food comes from it's absolutely mind-boggling. And, you know, that's a big deal about hunting and a hunting heritage is there's no hunter who's like that out there. They know where their food comes from. And I'm not just saying that from the food that they shoot and kill, but in general, yeah, you know, you get an appreciation for everything, whether you're drinking milk or, you know, eating your Cocoa Puffs in the morning. I mean, you know, how does that get made? And I think any hunter is going to know that for every piece of scrap of food they eat. And then you hear about other folks who, like, have no clue, like... About any of this. yeah, and you know that's that's vital too because you know
1: that's incredibly important. Yeah. If you don't know where it's coming from, then you're you're blind in the in the grocery store, aren't you? I oh mean, yeah. You know, if you pick up a package of meat or like you're even saying cocoa puffs, <laughs> what what's happening here? Like, yeah. what, what are we what are we really eating? Where where's our money going? You know?
0: Yeah. Um, this, and that. You can do a whole. I'm sure maybe you already have. You can do a whole podcast on that because I yeah. Mean, It just brings up all kinds of issues you know and and especially when it comes to things like meat and procurement of meat and things like that and and obviously killing a deer and 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 processing that is is quite a big deal because of you know where it comes from and the pride you take in that and uh and the self-sufficient part of that, I mean, that's that's huge.
1: Yeah, no, that's a component I always at least want to touch on with everyone and get their thoughts on it, because everybody has like a, a gem of information in that way, whether it's through your experience with your daughter or family.
0: Well, and, you know, honestly, when you talk about when people, and I hate to talk about all these black and white things, hunting versus non-hunting. Yeah. Right? And you hate to do that, but, you know, again... And you were talking about, we were talking about this off off of audio before, but, you know, we have such a diverse and different perspective world that, you know, I don't, so when somebody says something like, you know, like a moose check, well, if people come up and want to see a moose, they're not hunters. And people will be like, so do you eat that? And for somebody like you and me, we'd be like, what? Yeah. What, what, yeah. what are you talking about? Like, how can you even have that perspective? And I don't get angry. I'm just saying that no. you're, it's a bit shocking, right? Like what, you, like, what comes with that? You think that people just come up here and shoot a moose just to shoot it? Mm-hmm. And maybe that happens. Well, let's, not, let's be fair. Maybe that happens. The majority of people, though, shoot a big game animal and want to eat that animal and take pride in that. And that's, that's a big deal. And for a moose, you know, you're talking about over 300 pounds of quality free range venison moose venison to have and that's that's huge and what that could feed a family for how long um man you can get all dreamy about it let's face it you know and um so when somebody comes up who doesn't understand that and makes that comment you know you could really take that badly but i understand that it's just that we live in a very different world all of us and we need to respect that and, and somehow figure a way in that circumstance to bring people along no you know People hunt moose for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of the prime reasons is meat, the meat of the moose. And, yeah, they eat it, and it's good meat. It's good quality, and try some. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely,
1: definitely. Um, I um, uh, One of the other things I want to touch on, too, is uh, just for the trophy, or I say trophy, uh, either trophy and or quality. We can interchange those terms. The, the quality management of... In your specialty, moose, here here in the state, and then your experience, because you're such an, an avid and passionate deer hunter, it seems to me um, that you have, like you even mentioned, you have a very healthy uh, hunting culture here. Yeah. Is there a healthy culture of more meat, or or is it more quality trophy type of hunting? or, of course, a combination of both, but what what are you seeing as far as, um, in your position, the state, uh, uh, what is the state popular? What is the state known yeah. for? Is it known for more uh, like meat hunting or more trophy hunting, in your opinion?
0: Well, so we do, as you can imagine, you've talked to other state agencies, we do a lot of public opinion stuff, surveys. Mm-hmm. and it, and And really, I guess I could say yay for social media, because um, there's means to do that now easier than ever, you know. Back in the day, it was all, um, you know, some questionnaire you'd get in the mail or calling people, right? And now people just hang up on you. Mm. Um, but we do those surveys and we've done that type of question, you know, what, what's your primary reason for moose hunting? Let's say, mm. and my recollection, um, is that you know, some sort of trophy aspect is a tiny, tiny percentage, like we're talking single digit percentage, so the majority of the reasons for moose hunting are going to be way high up in the, you know, time of family. Um, the cultural aspect of it and the meat aspect of it. There's no question. And I could probably dig that up someplace. So that always gives you some faith. Like, yeah, you know, Definitely. people want to, family wants to be together, um, family and friends. And man, we like the meat and, and let's face it. It's a six day hunt. And usually the typical refrain, you if you asked anybody in Maine, would be, you know, this whole thing about a Monday morning moose, you know, versus Saturday. And so there's all kinds of sayings about that, you know, better. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is most moose are taken in the first three days. Probably 75% of the moose are harvested the first three days. Six days doesn't sound like a lot, but it gets long for people. Um, a lot of people will pass on yearling bulls. And it's a phenomenon that's really interesting in the state because we're talking about the tooth data. So we can look at the age distribution of, of bulls, let's say. And usually you start with your young age, and that goes fairly level and then slopes way down and tails off when you get into the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old bulls. There's only a few that get shot that live that long. Mm-hmm. Or that there's enough out there that it would be common to shoot that. That wouldn't make much sense. Mm-hmm. So you see that, but in moose in Maine, there's, a very, there's not many one-year-olds that are shot. So that line starts up at the two-year-olds. So it starts down low at the one, goes up to two, and then follows that normal distribution that we see in other populations. I see. So people avoid shooting yearlings. Well, why? Um, maybe there's a bigger bull around the corner, and they're out there bull hunting. They can see these little spikes, or maybe there's more points, and they decide to pass on and we're gonna see another one. Um, I have not seen that change in the data in over 40 years at all. In fact, the, the look, if you looked at our bulls, what do the bulls look like over the years? It's always been the same, despite changes in number of moose harvested. It's always been the same. That is, people are, on average, the average bull moose that shot's gonna be either four years old or three years old, It's going to have a 34 to 36-inch spread, and it's probably going to be around 725 pounds Mm. every time. So if you go to the check station and look at a moose, that's what you're going to see. Now, do you see the young ones, and do you see the old ones? Absolutely, you do. But as a whole, that's what it looks like, and it's looked like that every year since 1980. And people don't trust that. But all the information is right in the computer and shows you that. I see. Um, and so it's and it's and it's it's really really interesting. Um, and of course, you know, if you break that down by the management units, you know, we have 29 management units in the state, but now we're down to we hunt 20 of those. So not every unit's a moose hunting unit. Mm-hmm. Those are all deer hunting units. though. So, you know, people will ask us about trophies and all this stuff, or, you know, I'd like to come and I'd like to shoot a big bull because, you know, this is to me a a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. I put in for 20, 30 years and I got my hunt. Where can I shoot a big bull? Well, the answer to that really is anywhere. But obviously in a place where you have more moose, uh, depending on the bull-cow ratios and other factors, you may have a better chance. But what kind of a moose hunter are you? You know, what do you got to do? What are you willing to do? Um, And what's your knowledge? And I can never get in somebody's head on that. Mm. What you and I are seeing when we look out the window, I can't, you know, it's hard to know. You Mm. know, like if I say, well, you got to look for fresh moose sign. I mean, you might be right in on that and know that up, down, and sideways. And somebody else might get out there and be like, really doesn't know yeah so that's always a hard one to to put across to people but you know last year in one of our units that has not a lot of permits they shot two uh, 60 inch bulls out of that same unit Hmm. which is pretty impressive
2: yeah
1: so that's refreshing to know uh no pun intended but the meat of it is that three to four year old uh moose uh as far as harvesting is concerned and then you do get those older and then you do get the younger ones but it seems to me with that information right there that Maine is a state for just passionate moose hunters, not necessarily somebody who says I got to go to Maine to get a trophy. I just want to go and get the experience. They
0: could do it either way. I mean, we have a robust uh, professional guides association Mm -hmm. and uh, the majority of non resident hunters use guides and the success rate is phenomenal. Wow. I mean, I will say that. And, and there's no question that you know the right hunter could choose the right guide and get on a pretty big bull. I see. There's no question, and you know a lot of these guides, um, the serious guides, are spending a lot of time out in the woods preseason, and they're they're dialed right in on where these where some of these good bulls are. They know where they are,
2: mm. and
0: then it's a matter of whether they can get their hunter in um, and get that done. Gotcha. So. You know.
1: So it's there if you want it, but the, but the meat of it is, is, is passion and and just being out there. That's awesome. You
0: know, and the thing is, as bad as, you know, the winter tick situation is at a population level, um, you know, those, those male and female moose that make it to one year of age, they're going to (coughs) be, excuse me, they're going to be in good shape and, uh, you know, our adult mortality from winter tick is, is pretty low. Mm. So those animals are out there. And, you know, in Maine you could... You could <coughs> wow. Really need to start with the water here. Uh, you know, a mature bull is really... You're talking about it from the age of 5 to 10. That's mature. 11 is when so-called senescence, old age, starts to impact the bull where the antlers are not going to develop really any bigger at that point Mm -hmm. um but you could you could shoot a four-year-old bull that's a monster Mm. as well you know what i mean so you know people talk about quality and all that and it can be quite a young animal and be the biggest bull of the year if that's what you want yeah um you know and and they're out there but again you know like all these critters right the older you get the more wily you get right so it's not uh you know, that can present a challenge unless you're right place, right time during the rut or whatever it takes. Yeah. Are you seeing
1: especially good genetics like that in any one region of, of Maine?
0: Well, I mean, it, it's still, you know, especially relative to where you live, it's a small state. Yeah. You know, it's big for New England, but relative to the western states, it's small. Uh-huh. So, and our moose go to Quebec and New Brunswick and New Hampshire. You know, they're all the same, you know. Um, I have collared moose that cross right into Quebec and, um, you know what I mean? So the genetics, when that starts to really vary, you know, I think takes a little bit more latitude and longitude to get to where they're getting other populations that are kind of impacting each other. So hard to tell, you know, there's probably people out there disagree and say, you know, there's over here, it's better or this, but. But you can find them anywhere if you're,
1: you know. You can find a big bull really anywhere in the state.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously where there's the core part of the range, but even the peripheral parts, you know, not as far from here, you know, there's less moose, mm-hmm. but there could be a dandy in there as well.
1: You see. Um, I've noticed also, at like your picture up here with that moose completely submerged mm-hmm. in, in the water, I've also read too that they, they, they're fairly avid water uh, animals. Yeah. I mean, they, they they're swimmers or...
0: Old bucket nose doesn't have to turn his head far to stick his nose in a bit of water in Maine. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a wet state, uh, ponds, lakes, streams, rivers, everywhere, bogs, Mm -hmm. you name it. Um, and all different types of turns, terms for all those things. But, you know, and at least in Maine, it's, um, you know, you look out at Western states and it's just a different dynamic when you talk about moose and the habitat. And where they are, because things are much more segregated in habitat, and obviously water, as you know, out there. Mm-hmm. But here, it's just everywhere, and there's not a lot of topography. So some of our bigger mountains, um, you know, you see some more changes there with with habitat type. But really, in general, it's not that big of a deal. But so yeah, moose moose starting in June, July, August into the beginning of September before things die back. There's kind of a rhythm to them spending time in the water so you know early in the season you might get lone cows who don't have a calf with them some bull using in that water and then as those calves that were born in may get a little bit older and are starting to change their diet off of milk um, they'll be visiting these bodies of water there's a lot of um, sodium in these aquatic vegetation and moose crave sodium when they come out of winter mm. and so they'll hit mineral muddy licks along roads and everything but they'll also can get that sodium from aquatic veg and they'll go in these areas, and just like that moose, I love that picture because one of the a couple of the guys who worked with me on the moose project over the years were one of the only states that captured moose to put collars on them in the water. Oh, cool! And so we'd go in the water. I get some crazy video of this um, GoPro video of us where we're basically cutting those moose into deep water, so they're swimming, and then we were able to boat up to them, and put a rope on them, um, so they're now attached to our canoe or or Jeez. or a 16-foot boat or whatever, motorized boat, pull them into us, put a collar on them, let them go after we ear tag them, and do this in a couple minutes. So we've handled a moose in a couple minutes in the water. And we we actually call it about 25 moose over the years. Uh, when we were operating down in that neck of the woods, we caught a few more um, non-target moose in there. But we learned a lot about moose in the water, and that's that's just a crazy thing because... This one time we were out there and, you know, you're, you're in this body of water that's got lots of nooks and crannies and coves and you're looking for moose and, and the habitat and we we're out there one day and we looking, you're looking at this rock and it's kind of dark in the morning and I'm like, man, that thing is moving. It's moving. And then all of a sudden the moose's head comes out of the water, you know, comes up for air and it's like, oh my God, it is a moose. And then it puts its head down and then you just see this hump like working back and forth, just working, just like in that picture, mowing down the, uh, the, uh, vegetation. And it's wow. a pretty, you know, so they can seal their nostrils. Um, they can actually dive. Um, and they're really pretty good swimmers. And so, um, so know, com-
1: a bull completely submerged can be like underwater for yeah. how long?
0: Well, we've tried to time it. I always forget, you know, but mm-hmm. I mean, they, it seems like a long time when you talk 30, 40 seconds or something, it might, you know, when you're counting there, looking at it, it's like that's that's a long time. It seems like it's forever, but it's not.
1: Yeah. I see. Wow.
0: So that's, yeah.
1: that's interesting. So yeah, it you, is. you say the sodium content of the vegetation. So that's not brackish water though, it's it's fresh water. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. But the, the sodium content yeah. in the Yeah, in and the, the soils
0: and the in the wetland soils and the uptake in the vegetation. Um, they have lots of plants that they like to like the chow on, and obviously they're taking up water as well when they're feeding in those environments, and then they go back in the woods and chew their cud for a while, and we this one body of water that we used to catch moose in was our so-called honey hole, and it was literally mind-blowing how many moose we'd see out on that water body, and that they were individual moose. You know, I'm sure we saw duplicates, but when we got the GPS caller data back, and you look at where these moose are, you're like, and over the I think we caught moose in the water there for the first 5 or 6 years we were doing it because we were just targeting adult females. Um, I want to say there was maybe two or three times that we were stalking a moose in the water and we're like, "Oh my god, it's got a collar on it." But mm. the majority of time it was not a moose that had a collar. Interesting. And so it's like
1: there's a lot of moose going there. It's
0: just crazy. Yeah. Know? But I've never calculated it, but I guess if you looked at the actual land area surrounding it and kind of extrapolate out to the Moose home range, it'd be like, okay, yeah, maybe that makes more sense. You know, this is just a little piece of their range.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, I didn't know that about them as far as the water is concerned. When you're tagging them in the water and you're approaching them in the water, have you noticed that they are uh, more calm in the water or or is there a well, We're not.
0: We're sneaking in on them, ah, so we don't want them to notice us. When they see us, all hell breaks loose, typically. It depen- Water or and, not. And, yeah, and, and, you know, we got funny stories because, of course, when we first started doing this, we weren't very good at it, right? You know, so we made mistakes, and there's nothing like a mistake where you're in a little boat, and you got three moose that feel like they're all surrounding you, and then they're running for, you know, high tail back in the woods, and you feel like they're coming right over you, you know? And yeah. It's like, wow. But we learned, we got to the point where when we cut them into the water, they're just there. They look at us, and there's that one second, and you keep going at them. And then they start swimming, and you're after them while they're swimming. So they're just in the water swimming. And some of them were fairly docile, and then we had some that um, weren't as happy. But the nice thing is that, you know, again, this is a humane activity in our view. We we feel like you know we have the we have the legal ability and all that in part of our research to do this work. We've never had a mortality with this method um, from the capture. You know what I mean? I mean capture work does can involve mortalities. You know, yeah. ask any state, but not not with this. So so you know, and again, once we get the the rope on the moose, it's a it's a couple minutes. So it's not taking much time at all. You're snapping this collar on, putting in air tags, and then we have a quick release, and that moose is off, and it's swimming away from us, and we're not running the motor or anything. We're just sitting there quietly, and that moose is is swimming away. Interesting. It's fun days, I can tell you.
1: Yeah. So their personalities, are there any, um, just from even Maine residents or people who don't know, yeah. that run the gamut of like knowing or not knowing moose, <clears throat> Would you say that the personality profile is correct? Are they... Are they... Um...
0: No. <laughs> no? Well, I, I, I think the personality profile is, you know, what's the most dangerous animal? It's a moose, you know. Bull moose. That's there. what you hear. Yeah, bull moose with their animals. Cows with calves. So for seven years of our work, we snuck in like you were hunting a cow to see if it had a calf at heel. And the whole point of that is you don't all want to be detected, right? Because if you're detected, then you just blew whatever happened. You blew them in their natural state, right? And you've affected what they're doing. You don't want to do that. Mm. That's a no-no. So you're going in and spying on these animals. When you are caught, we've, we've discovered, and this isn't statistically correct, but generally half of those cows take off with their calves, and they're gone, just like a deer. And then the other half are standing on their ground looking at you like, yeah. 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 And so... Half. Half.
2: Well, half and half, you know, Almost. I don't you know, <laughs> who knows, but but
0: to your point, they're individuals and they react differently. But again, like I said earlier, is that you know, we have run in snowmobilers every year running into moose on this trail because the snowmobile trail is packed mm-hmm. and the moose is standing out there, it was feeding, and then a snowmobile came along. It's like, well, I'm not gonna go anywhere, you know, I'm, yeah, what do you want? You gotta do something. And people on the logging roads run into, there's a moose on the logging road, and instead of the moose running in the woods, it just runs down the road because the people keep following it, and mm. you got to stop and let it get off. Um, but, yeah, some, some are more aggressive than others. The problem is, is well, not the problem, but when moose come into a town, there's usually something wrong, like they're sick or really? there's something going on there. Not always. Um, and those moose can be weird because some of them can be docile or some of them may have meningial worm which is oh, brainworm, which is impacting them neurologically, where they're doing strange stuff like circling or walking in circles with their head bent or being very aggressive and charging. I see. Um, but, you know, you know, moose, the way moose want to attack somebody is they want to either stomp you with their rear legs, like stomp you, like, you know, uh-huh. or they want to flail with their front legs, rear up and flail at you. I see. Um, you know, bulls are using their antlers, um, as a sparring activity where they come together and then they're really, it's a pushing battle of the bulls. Um, people always think of these antlers as weapons, but yeah, I mean, a bull could charge you and might as well use its head rack, but it could use, you know, other, its legs as well if it wanted Kill to. You. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's an unusual circumstance where, you, you know, where you did something pretty weird to have a bull or whatever to be that aggressive with you.
1: I see. So, just wide range of personalities there is, is what it sounds like. I yeah. did read about that that um, the worm in, that gets into their brain. Yeah, that's because they um, it's a snail, right? They the snail is in snails and slugs. I see, and that's on the the vegetation, and they just eat it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I see. Not knowing, not saying, ooh, that's a snail. Let me eat that. But it's kind of on
0: the. Yeah, leaves. it's in, it's in incidental. Oh. And deer do the same thing, but it doesn't impact deer. Oh, yeah, that's right. I read that, too. And that's been one of the... Crazy. That's been one of the issues with deer and moose is that when their range overlaps, um, they're carrying similar parasites, but the deer, likely because it's so many generations, evolutionary, they've lived with these things so much longer, they tend not to get the impact when the moose, poor moose, gets these things. It's not good and moose can survive meningeal worm but you know they can also die from it you know it can cause paralysis so when the when when they swallow that snail or slug and that worm is basically released in its digestive tract it then migrates through the body and it'll get up into the into the central nervous system so that's where it potentially impacts the spinal cord and then eventually can get into the meninges that surround the brain mm. and so depending on the path of that worm it's going to have different uh impacts on the neurological and motor function of that moose mm. and so again you get these circumstances where the moose is totally walking around but it's doing circles all over the place yeah. um they do this thing called raining their head so it's like somebody's pulling on their rain on their side and so they get their head imbalanced and their eyes budge, bulge bulged out and they're going to one side or they're they're running to one side with their head over. Oh, and then disturbing. you get and then you get ones that have hind end paralysis where they can't get up. And if you're a bull moose and you can't get up and you're sitting there for days um, and you're not feeding, you're you're a goner.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's disturbing. It is. But they
0: they can survive it depending on how many worms they get in their initial contact.
1: Yeah. It's a silly question, but how does that happen? You once they eat it and it's in their GI system, how does it get up there? How does it get to the
0: brain? Well, like I was saying, the the worm itself at that larval stage, oh, okay. is okay. Is, mo- is able to, you know, like an earthworm, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's borrowing its path through, and for whatever reason, that particular worm, where it likes to go and how it knows this right? I mean, yeah. it's crazy where it's, it's going up through the spinal cord. And then maybe it's something I never even thought about it. Maybe it's something where it can't go any further when it gets there. And that's a good home for it because it's, there's synovial fluid in that surrounds the brain. And maybe there's something, I, I don't know. I'm just guessing that there's something in that environment where it can basically become an adult and you yeah, know, how's it get know, into the that system? That'd yeah. be you,
1: that'd be interesting and really gross to think about. Yeah, <laughs> I just
0: never gone to that level, but there's been a lot of work on on this uh, this particular parasite and what it does because there are, you know, whenever you get into an area where you have higher densities of white-tailed deer, you're going to increase your level of brain or worm, mm. And so there's a big history of moose and deer range overlap where those deer populations are so high that then the moose are just falling out of the system. And usually a worm is to blame for that. This ability of the deer to withstand the the brain worm, but the moose not. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Um, Let's touch on this before we we say goodbye here. Um, Because we're so, you and I are passionate hunters, I, I believe. And I'm a passionate deer hunter as well. More access deer in Hawaii because I haven't had a lot of, I yep. drew a mule deer tag. it be my first year hunting mule deer. In this New year? Me- yeah, in New Mexico. I know. Where? I can't, I
0: can't wait. Up in,
1: um, are we, were you familiar with the units when you were there?
0: A little bit. Well, what's the mountain ranges? It's near?
1: it's 5B next, bordering the hickorya. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So it's supposed on the, to be. On
0: what side of the hickorya?
1: Uh, southern, southern part of it. Huh. Yeah.
0: Supposed to be a good zone?
1: It's supposed to be epic. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be epic. I'm gonna spend so much time in there scouting. And how long is the season? Oh, uh, for me, it's like four days. I think it's All like right. like November, It's a rifle tag, so yeah. it's one one to four. Uh, uh, November first to the fourth, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And man, I can't, I can't. Oh yeah, me too. I'm like yeah. savoring it up. I, it's and my, what's your
0: what's your caliber of choice?
1: I have I have a 270, yeah. but I just <clears throat> bought for my birthday a nosler m21 look this up i've i did a lot of research on this rifle (laughs) before i got it but you you can go down a rabbit hole with this gun once you start looking at the reviews you'll freak out and try to buy one and there's none available so i got lucky and i found a 300 win mag caliber yeah and that's my that really is my caliber of choice if i was to choose one caliber because i feel i can go anywhere with that right right I could take down a moose with that. I could go deer hunting with that. I could go bear hunting with that. I, yeah. I almost feel like I could go grizzly hunting with that. I mean, yeah. uh, but it's, a, it's, it's an all-around caliber. So I've, it's a Nosler M21-300 Win Mag is what yeah. I'm hoping that is, <laughs> is going to do the job <laughs> this year. <laughs> but my, my favorite gun is a, is a Mauser 270. I have a Mauser, oh, yeah. Mauser 270. It's, it's been my magic gun for, for a while.
0: Well, I was a bad boy, supposedly, because I traded my 270 in. No,
1: you are a bad boy. And and everybody's like,
0: you don't don't get rid of those.
1: Yeah, you don't ever get rid of it. It was left-handed. Oh, uh, you're
0: crazy. I'm ambidextrous, so. Oh, okay. I have have this weird, weird thing where I'm a right-hander, but I'm an ambidextrous shooter.
1: Oh, so you must be uh, uh, highly intelligent, right? I hear those ambidextrous Uh, people.
0: (laughs) Um, I don't know about that, but I can shoot both hands with a rifle.
1: But um, but what I was going to get into as far as deer hunting, because you're you're a passionate yeah. deer hunter too. Well, how's the deer hunting in this state? Is it? I mean, I, I don't want you to give away any of your secrets, but it seems like this is a just driving through the state, talking to people. This is a really healthy. There's there's a, a big deer population here. The big moose population here. Big bear population here. It's right. it
0: seems. Am I correct in that? Well, you know you know what I'm going to say here about deer, which is. You know, we're never going to compare to the Midwest or the South mm-hmm. from any perspective except for big deer. And people will get into big deer, well, we're talking whitetails here of course, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you you look at, you know, I get this, it used to be quality deer management, now it's called NDA. And you look at their rankings and everything like that and Maine's not going to ever rise to the top because, you know, we, the thing that I love about Maine is that, <clears throat> many things about Maine. but Deer hunting is, there's lots of opportunity if you know, you know, depending on the different seasons, right? I mean, I told you about how long my season can be between various uh, methods of choice, crossbow, rifle, muzzle loader, and that's pretty cool. I mean, people can hunt with lots of opportunity here. I think, you know, you could have people who set up on the edge of a field and and stand hunt, right? Mm -hmm. But a big attraction, I think, that would draw people to the state is, is of course, what's our big buck hunting, the big woods hunting where you're tracking a buck in snow. And that's, in some ways, that seems to be like the classic because they're in northern Maine, and some parts of the west, western Maine, and some parts of down east, which is eastern Maine. Relative to any other state, our deer populations are very low. In fact, in moose country, I mean, there are extremely low densities of deer. And so you need in that country you would need an advantage and that's called snow and tracking on snow. And you think of somebody like you probably looked, we talked about Hal blood's podcast and his big woods box. And, you know, those guys are pretty renowned for what they do and pretty, you know, dogging a, a deer all day long. Mm-hmm. And they're taking a crack at a, you know, these 200 pound bruising, you know, they're not up there to doe hunt; They're up there to shoot a big buck mm-hmm. and, you know, that's just a different way, different style you know, to each his own, and, and I think they do some pretty cool stuff doing that. Of course, it's snow-dependent, right, for the most part. So um, that's a challenge. So, you know, again, the other the other big thing about Maine that we touched on is that, and people don't realize this, is that Maine is, you could almost say, almost all private land. And so we kind of have that reverse posting thing. We always want people to ask permission to hunt on land, Um and and we're having more and more access issues with posting of lands and things but you're not going to have a big chunk of public land to come onto on maine and if there is public land like our wildlife management areas which are great places you're gonna have competition you know so you run into those issues and then the big moose woods um you know four of our management districts are are almost entirely within the Big Woods, and there's checkpoints there that you have to pay a day fee or overnight fee. We were talking about because it's all logging, and commercial logging roads, so you have to be aware of that. And yeah. that's totally different. But people will deer hunt up there, bird hunt, bear hunt, and moose hunt, uh, and it's quite a thing. But that's all private land, and we always have to remind people because you can't just do whatever you want up there. Yeah, you know, and uh, but uh, people treat it as as more of a national forest concept in some ways when it's not. Somebody owns that land and they're trying to produce trees and a product off of it. So, yeah, something people have to be mindful of. Yeah. But I I love deer hunting here and, you know, I think for a lot of people who live in other states, it's a challenge because it's so, ha- you know, we're 89, 90% forested. Mm. You know, so nobody's going to be shooting, you know, people have all these things where, you know, like long range hunting is such a big deal here. And people buying these, you know, calibers and, and optics and everything where they can shoot out, you know, 200, 300 more than that. People are probably laughing at me when they hear this, like, what are you talking about? 500 yards, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not doing that here. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, we're talking about, you know, most deer hunters in Maine, we're looking at 30, 40, 50 yard shots is what we're talking about. Yeah. In the woods. So.
1: Yeah, completely different. Completely different. It's fascinating here. Uh, and, I, yeah. and I love it. Man, I love this state. I've only been here a few days, but just talking to you. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, no, talking to you, <laughs> talking to Randy, talking to Keel. I mean, um, it's, been, it's been a really great experience. Just just And I, I went running up in the forest with, um, I think I told you this, uh, Jake and um, Lisa. Yeah, um, you, went, you met them? Yeah, I drove up to Allagash. And uh, man, you are crazy, yeah, yeah. Long run, it was when did a long, you do that yesterday? Yesterday,
0: oh my god,
1: yeah. I feel, I feel bad if Lisa's listening to this, but I, I didn't tell her, she might have already known. But I was like falling asleep in the truck, yeah. and I was like half asleep when she was talking one time, and I kind of yeah. jumped to it. I was like so yeah. embarrassed. So but. they take you into the woods, oh yeah. We went, we wow. went, we went, um. It's dog training season, yeah, right? For bear. For, yeah. yeah. So we went in with their hounds, and uh, oh my man, God. it was amazing. When did you do this? Yesterday. Yesterday, I, I got up at two uh, thirty, and drove up there and spent hardcore. Well, I mean, I only have a few days here. I go home oh. tomorrow, so I wanted to make it make it. Yeah, happen. They're quite a
0: they're quite a duo right there. So they're, that's a good experience.
1: Oh, they're fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. I wanted to do a, um, at some point. I want to do a podcast with them and talk about their hounds. They're well, you s- probably
0: talked about family with those three boys, little oh, boys they got bringing 100%, them up.
1: One hundred percent. Yeah, no, it was great. As soon as I walked in, we just I clicked with them. I really like what they're doing, and Thanks. I love their passion for just being out there. And we talked a lot about everything. We talked about politics. We talked about oh boy, and not on the podcast, obviously, but yeah. we just I I love their their point of view of where they live and how they live their lives. They're very um, wholesome. And good people. I like, And I like that. I like to see them. So Rand,
0: Randy must have put you on to them. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he called me the day after, too. He's like, how was that? And I was like, it was an experience. So, uh, no, it was great. I'm planning on doing a bear hunt with Randy. He said October. He's like, okay, the date's October 1st. Yeah. We're going to do a beach, beach nut type of hunt. Not one where you, it's over bait, but we're going to go out and do the uh, like a whole six-day river thing. And so, yeah, man, I, I'm lucking wow. out. I'm lucking out with with that. I'm so happy. But no, I I wanted to thank you, and um, wow. this has been a great experience. And I just thank you guys for, especially you, for welcoming me today and being able to sit down with you for what is it? Two? Hours? You're the longest podcast I have oh, so far. God,
0: two hours. How I, there's no way I bought. I beat the bear,
1: man. You beat you beat the bear, boss. Oh, you beat the bear, boss, bear. Yeah. Wow. From what from what Lisa calls him, he's the uh, the contiguous run-on sentence, um, but yeah, you're the longest podcast so far, so congratulations, Lee. Well,
0: thank you. You're welcome.
1: Yeah, no, seriously, thank you for this. And is there anything else that you want the public to know?
0: Well, well how many? How, how much time do we do? Two what?
1: <laughs> Two hours and thirty-four. I minutes. think we're
0: probably good on that one.
1: Yeah, nothing you want them to know. Oh, you know. Well, well I want them to know everything about moose, but yeah. well, what? The biggest thing, really, for me is like non-residents. Like uh, you, you know your your uh, your community here, mm-hmm. but the people who are non-residents that are either thinking about coming to Maine to whether it's deer hunt, moose hunt, especially moose hunt, bear hunt. Um, what what would you say to those to those people?
0: Well, I mean, those are three very very different things. You know, how about uh, moose? Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> since, yeah. You're the moose, since you're the moose guy. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we welcome non-residents, we'd love to have them here and all that. Like I said, you know, majority of them go with guides, they don't have to, they can do it yourself. I do have people call me up and ask me that question. And I say, yeah, full on, you know, I mean, if you want to do it yourself, absolutely, you can do it. Um, it's all about doing your homework, right? And, and really understanding that. And, you know, the way my brain works is, is slow. And uh, to really understand, if I was going to go to New Mexico and hunt, I mean, it would really take me some time to really understand it. And still, I wouldn't understand the nuances. But, uh, you know, I, I've always, people call me up, and we talk through it and recommended areas. It's, you know, of course, it's a frustration because it's a random lottery. You yeah. know, non-residents can, can buy additional chances to put in for the laundry, lottery, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how much money you want to spend. And But it's still random. You know, you know, so you can spend more and more money and, and get your name in there more times. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's still tough because it used to be 10% of our total permits by district go to non-residents. Now, 2% of that has gone to outfitters. So, 8% of our tags by management unit go to non-residents. So, we're talking 300 and something tags only for mm, non-residents. Okay. So, you know, the thing is, if you're thinking about it, you put in now. And you keep on going every year and keep putting in, and, and then you'll draw. And likely, if you draw, it's going to be one of your top choices. So, you know, think hard about that. Think where you're going to stay. To me, that's a big, always a big deal because do you want to drive all day or do you want to go hunt? Yeah. So, you know, I want to play, I want to go find a place where I'm going to stay, whether I'm camping or in a, in a camp, which is a cabin in other people's terms. In Maine, it's called a camp uh and then i want to hunt right there i don't want to spend my day driving roads yeah and that's how you avoid other people too so
1: so put in and and find your location and get stay there yeah i like that that's good stuff is it expensive Or the for do you know the prices offhand for non-residents uh, or No, it's
0: you know it's relative to other states it's pr- pretty damn cheap is it really yeah it is once you once you get that permit uh I don't have my computer on I'd have to look at it Oh, okay. I can't. No, it's okay. My memory I only remember selective things and that's it's not okay. one of them. <laughs> um, Especially for non-residents. Yeah, right? but I mean it's yeah it's it's a dandy of a hunt. You know, the other problem is that it's only 6 days so you know for people who are non-residents you you plan you got to figure out how you're going to do your scouting and all that, you know, obviously there's lots of apps now even with Google Earth to look at and yeah. you can scour the maps. I always, I always think it's really interesting that more people don't do that. You look at Google Earth and you look at the northern Maine and you look at the way it's chopped up, you know, different age stands, and you can see that on Google Earth and then compare that to other states. And, you know, eventually it becomes pretty evident why there's a lot of moose in the state of Maine. Yeah. Um, but anyways, we have a ton of information on our website, you know, maine.gov backslash IFW, Inland Fish and Wildlife. Um, we've had a huge increase in our information and education people, and I really think our site is outstanding with the amount of information, and that's not, on a, that's not a pat on the back for me. I think if I didn't know anything about moose and moose hunting and went on my, our website tomorrow and looked around, I'd find some pretty good things that I could take home and, and chew on. Uh, we put out a moose hunter's guide every year, that we we develop and edit and change a little bit the moose hunters guides on there we have a special adaptive hunt guide which has some dandy choice things in there from for hunters as well and uh awesome yeah i think there's some good products there for people to check out
1: awesome very good on all of our critters awesome fantastic um one one final thing i wanted to kind of close with just because it was so disturbing is this this the moose tick is there anything that hunters hunters can do when they're out in the woods? You know that like, that whole uh who's that uh that British prime minister who who uh who uh, uh you remember Dunkirk? That whole Dunkirk thing where he had all those boats when when he was they were they he was fighting Hitler, you know, oh, okay. trying to trying to prevent Hitler from coming and taking over yeah. uh Britain. Um where he he employed like the citizens to help out is there anything that the that hunters can do when they're in the woods uh to help out with this whole tick situation is there anything they can 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 we kill them can we put anything on them that won't hurt the forest is there anything that we can do to help
0: the thing is is that the problem there and i've been asked that question before and it's it's a challenge is that you know the larvae come out in the fall and some bird hunters will run into them so they're out there bird hunting in in October, and uh, they'll run into these things that they think are mites that are crawling over their pants, and they look kind of reddish, even though they're more brown. Um, But that happens once in a while, you know, and you could go out into an area that has ticks in it and not see any ticks, and then they rise up, and then they go back down, uh, and we're still learning about that. And then once they're on the moose, they're on the moose all winter. You never see them except that they're on the moose, and that's the problem. You know, how would you ever treat something like that? You know, and we're actually working on techniques. Um, our, the Penobscot Nation, the Penobscot Tribe, um, they have a biologist, and we work together along with other researchers, and they've just developed a new way to flag, literally use a, f- a white piece of flannel to be able to flag for ticks, to be able to work on counting ticks and trying to understand their ecology better.
1: Interesting, a flag.
0: Yeah, basically, okay. basically a piece of cloth that they're dragging through the woods. But they they just developed a new technique for research that's that's better at at finding those ticks versus the old method that we used to do of tick dragging. The way we look at it and count ticks is on the back of dead moose when they come in on the October bull season. Mm. So they're already on the moose.
1: Uh, I see, yeah. I see. So no, no way to really, not yet anyway, to identify them before that happens and to kill them as a hiker, or hunter, bird hunter, or something, seeing them. It would be a
0: shot in the dark kind of thing, well, if that. Yeah, I mean, I've been in the moose woods trying to look at tick pods, and uh, it's notoriously difficult. I see, yeah. I see.
1: Yeah, just a thought there, anything that, that we could do as advocates for that? Well, and then we
0: always run into the problem when people decide to take things into their own hands, and they're, you know, you'd certainly not want, you know, we're also talking about private land. You know, yeah, you can't true. go. You can't go on a private land and start doing stuff. Um, and people need to be very respectful of that. We're, we've always been concerned about being respectful to private land because you know what happens when you lose that. You don't have a place to hunt anymore. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, so that's a that's a big, big, big deal. We have game wardens who are work exclusively as landowner uh, liaison, so to speak. Mm. Um, because of all the issues that are out there with dealing with private landowners and them allowing us to use their land to hunt on, so yeah. that's a big issue. Interesting. Well, to be
1: continued on that one. But uh, you bet. But Lee, thanks again. Um, this has been great, and I think your your voice is going to be heard by a lot of people and appreciated as well. So thanks again, and hopefully, hey, well, we get to we get for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's eleven thirty. Hopefully, we can. Get out and see that moose that you were talking about. All righty, we'll see. But thanks, thanks again. Good luck
0: in New Mexico. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I <laughs> oh, can't even tell you. Oh man, I can't. Mule deer hunting. I'll,
1: oh. I'll send you the picture if I'm if I'm blessed enough to, to harvest an animal. Ten four. All right. Thanks again, Lee. All
0: right.